Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber, and welcome to 2024. That's what you're going to say, right? That is what I was going to say. Yep. It's the the newest year of all the years that have ever come. So far, yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. I realized when someone asked on the Discord uh, what happened to the last episode is that the in the previous episode, we didn't say, hey, we'll be skipping Christmas and back next year. It is a thing we have done, I think, every year. Maybe not our first year, but pretty sure every year we've uh, skipped the Christmas episode because it's freaking Christmas, man. We, we got to celebrate the birth of our Lord some way. And uh, the way we do it is by not working. We'll make it up to you guys. We will? Somehow. <laughs> okay. I-, I was about to say, because this episode is going to be in the, in the theme of... Uh, taken or easy uh a totally self-indulgent episode where we catch up chat about things uh do some listener feedback and just in general don't have a topic just just hanging out yeah i'm super into it i think it'll be fun i want to start out with a remember when kind of thing Ooh, fun remember when back in the new atheism days in the early aughts i'm sure you did this too you would find something really neat or pithy on the internet and you would snip it and copy it to a text file or something somewhere so you'd have it? I don't recall ever actually doing that, but I, I definitely had uh, resources I'd go to for, for quick finds. Honestly, I think a lot of that work was done for me. You know, if I was like looking up like what was what was Hitch's razor or something, you know, like I could I could go find those pretty quickly. And there were, there are a lot of amalgamations of like tidbits and stuff on various websites, but can't say I ever put one together myself. I think pretty much all my friends had this thing where if we came across something really cool or really funny or just like nowadays it's something that you would drop on Twitter. But uh, back in the day, it was just like, this is cool. And you copy it and you save it somewhere so that you have it and you can refer back to it. And honestly, you never did. But (laughs) there was just this archiving instinct, which I think is a remnant of back when things were much harder to find. I, I, now that like everything is always available online and you can uh, Google it or chat GPT it, it there's less of a, this, this desire, but yeah, it was always just massively long text files after a while that were filled up with one or two line things, sometimes one or two paragraph things that were just perfect for some reason. And everyone did it. I def- definitely, and I still have parts of it, like collections of downloaded YouTube videos back when that was harder to do. Um, mm-hmm. I have uh, like lots of old pictures, uh, not like photographs I took, but random art online or something. Yeah. I, again, the kind of thing that, you know, maybe you could bookmark easily now or something, but I've still got them like on an external hard drive somewhere. It's weird. My MP3 folder kind of stopped eight years ago. <laughs> Redundancies, <laughs> man. Yeah, it's weird. Now I can just get it online so I don't bother downloading things anymore. And that, that seems like a shame, too. You would go to land parties and everybody would exchange all their MP3s and their their quotes files and everything land parties that that was that was that was a little bit uh not before my time it was just uh outside my my circle okay yeah i mean how else would you play quake with all your buds and yell at them when you pineapple their asses ah that's the thing you didn't or i didn't <laughs> <laughs> okay fair enough but we did we did split screen mario kart and stuff you know yeah I mean, but you couldn't really do that with Quake because then you could see the other person's screen and where they are. And oh, yes. No Split screen, uh, GoldenEye and stuff. You know, th- th- that was mm. just ripe for cheating. I bring it up because uh, in the less wrong posts uh, that I, you know, go through and pull out the next two every every episode, starting a few episodes ago, the original Rationality Quotes posts went up and I've been skipping them because they're just quotes that are encapsulating the vibes of rationality but for a second i contemplated should we bring up one of these talk about it do something like that and i looked it i opened it up and i looked through it and i was like 
No, no, that is a bygone era. There's there's not much to talk about here unless we just want to ride a nostalgia train, which I am famously allergic to. So I closed it again. But uh, do, you, do you remember those rationality quotes posts when they went up and your feelings around them? I'd have to skim them. I mean, I remember the 12 virtues of rationality. Oh, the, these were definitely not that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I'd have to I'll go look and see if the drug memory, but nothing jumps to mind. No. Why did you save some of these back in the day? Oh, yeah, I, I'm absolutely I did. I guess whenever I found one in the quotes that was one that I had also saved, it felt like, oh, yes, I love it. Yeah, I mean, there's like, um, feels like seeing your in group. Yeah, Th- this would have been, you know, 2007 or eight. This was back when, you know, I guess finding your bookmarks was pretty easy. But I like the idea that you uh, independently saved them. I went ahead and just tossed you one. Oh, these do ring a bell. Perfection is our goal. Excellence will be tolerated. I like it. This is a nice way of putting it. Morality is objective within a given frame of reference. Sure. Yeah. Kind of like speed. I like this one. If there was a verb meaning to believe falsely, it would not have any significant first person present indicative. <laughs> that sounds like a, a Wittgenstein, which it is, uh, to be clear. How, I'm not being pretentious. How do, you know what, how do you know what Wittgenstein sounds like? Convoluted. I, I listen to a lot of philosophy podcasts and I used to read stuff back in the day. Neat. I didn't know that. Yeah, I was a philosophy nerd. What is uh, some of your favorite, one of your favorite philosophy podcasts? Back in the day, this might actually still be a thing, was Philosophy Bites. It'd be like 15 minute, 20 minute interviews with people about like a very specific subject. In fact, there was one with uh, Daniel Dennett and the Chinese Room that I really liked because he he hates that thought experiment. Uh, That was uh, John Searles, I think, Chinese Room experiment and or thought Mm -hmm. experiment. And it is horseshit, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I mean, so so Searle is like, well, the guy in there doesn't know Chinese, right? And neither does the computer. And Dan is like, well, no, the room does. Like, for whatever, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. This is kind of like, it boils down to, and I don't think he puts it this way, but that like simulated knowledge is knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, if 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 I'm getting the right Chinese out of it, I, I don't care if it knows Chinese, quote unquote, right? Mm-hmm. And this this actually just is super apropos because I'm sure this podcast is recorded years before anyone was using large language models for anything. And, you know, does ChatGPT know uh, various languages? You know, does it matter? That, that, that seems like a wrong question, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. When I was like 14 or 15 for Christmas, I wanted a, a, a collection of CDs that was like introduction to philosophy courses. That was, that was by Colin McGinn. Oh, cool. And that was that was pretty good. It was funny. At uh, the meetup a few days ago, uh, we were talking consciousness stuff, which was riveting. And I had to dust off a lot of old thoughts because I haven't really thought about that stuff in a while. And uh, the last section of that, of Colin McGinn's course, was on consciousness. And he advocates a position called defeatism. Excuse me, mysterianism. I call it defeatism because he says that this could just be something that's actually outside of our ability to understand. Mm. And it's like, yeah, people said that about lots of stuff, dude. Yeah. So I'm not ready just to whatever, give up, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. The idea of consciousness is outside of our ability to understand? The Yeah. The, the question that was posed, you know, that you seem to not, the hard problem of consciousness, uh, the, the solution to it being outside of uh, human comprehension. Which is like the hard problem of fairies or the hard problem of gravity. There, there is no hard problem. I think the hard problem of fairies is solved because they're fake. The hard problem of gravity is like, why do objects of mass attract each other like that's just mm-hmm. a law of nature yeah but the question of like so you know why do i perceive whatever my computer screen when i look at it that that's just physics but mm-hmm. why is it like something to perceive my computer screen as opposed to looking at my water bottle like there, there's there's a distinct difference in experience there even though the the physics under, underlying it is basically the same there, there's there's a 
qualitative difference. There's a difference in what's going inside of your brain too. Yeah, the the inputs and stuff are different, but the the experience and the of output. it. Like li- literally everything that, that you're describing maps to something that is happening in the brain with some sort of physical object. Yeah. Carrie had a great uh, analogy too, you know, with like the 17th century scientists rubbing a glass tube with sheep's skin or sheep's wool and a copper tube with lead and then touching them and then they spark. So to say, hey, why is that happening? And if the scientist said, well, it's it's a fundamental law of nature that when you rub a glass tube with wool, it just, you know, is ready to be sparked. That's that's just wrong, right? Any, any answer like that was missing the underlying picture of electrons and electro- electromagnetism, right? Like, yes. So I, I think I that, mean, that I think that by just saying, well, your experience of, of the red cup is just a law uh, is just physics or just I, I think it's missing the important part of it. Right. I don't think so. But what I responded to Carrie with was that, sure, but if you say that you rub these two together and you get a spark and therefore there is some unknown mysterious thing in addition to the universe, in addition to the material universe, which we need to try to understand, then you're more wrong than I am when I say that's just what happens when you rub glass with wool. Right. I I am the less wrong of the two there. But also. But there's there's a third option there, which is to say something's happening here, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, but like if you look deeper and you get to the uh, the electrons uh, and electromagnetic theory and how, you know, when you touch a positive and negative charge thing together, sometimes they'll bridge the gap and that results in a spark. All, all that basically boils down to the positive and negative charged uh, things attract each other. And then the question that is like, why? And eventually you get down to the that's just how the universe works. Like, why do two things with mass draw each other? That's what it means to have mass, you know? There's not an ultimate why unless you're going all the way to Tegmark and saying, like, well, everything that can be described mathematically is instantiated physically. And at that point, you can also ask again, why? Like, there is no why. This is just what reality is. Right. At at the bottom of of the, I don't know, the deep well of whys, there's, there's bedrock right? Mm. This isn't so much a why question as it is a how question or a what question, right? I, I, again, I, I don't think the how is unanswered. The how is we see what happens in your neurons. That's that's what neurons do. They create this feeling. Mm. I, I'm, I'll, I'll have to, I mean, I don't know if we want to make this whole thing a, a, di- a digression into a, into nah. the hard problem of consciousness, but I, I, I guess... Into the non-problem of consciousness. <laughs> I mean, I think... You're missing what's what's tripping people up, but I, I'm having a hard time articulating it better than I already have. So, like, I, I, I'm actually pretty sure you're seeing it and just saying that's not a problem. But well, I'm I'm definitely missing why it's a problem to think that minds is what brains create. It's it's not that's that's not the hard problem. I think that the the hard problem is like why not why where hmm. You know, if, if I if I drop a rock off a building from a certain height, it's going to hit a certain it's going to hit the ground at a certain speed, depending on how high it was. Right. Calculating mm-hmm. for wind resistance. Mm-hmm. But it so like th- there's 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 simple physics there. There's less simple physics about, you know, why uh, the Earth orbits the sun, um, even though they're related. And then, you know, you've got like the strong force of electromagnetism holding atoms together or the, str- the strong nuclear force and then weak nuclear forces. It's not really clear where in that mixture comes up with like the what it's like to feel warm, you know, versus feeling cold. 
and and it's coming from somewhere in the meat in our heads. You take enough of that meat out and that stuff stops happening, but it's not like coming from one neuron. It's not coming from probably any three neurons, right? There, there's some critical mass you have to hit. It could probably be done with other stuff. Uh, yeah. So like, I'm not positing that there's some like magic thing above science. I, I'm just saying that there's something about qualia that is of a different nature than like whatever something's mass or shape you know um i i mean i know what you're saying i i think it's best summed up in an smbc comic that i saw not too long ago which i really wish that i had saved maybe in one of these uh in one of these quotes files because uh, he makes where... it impossible to search his website god it's I mean, it's such a yes. drag yeah it really is but a, a human's talking to an advanced ai and it's asking it along the lines of like um what is consciousness right and the ai doesn't understand at first and after some talking it's like oh is this one of these problems where you can't, humans don't understand numbers and the human's like what what do you mean we don't understand numbers he's like well when you have one of something you can understand it and that's really uh that's fine with you 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 get it you can boil it down to everything but once you have a lot more than one of something all of a sudden you get confused and everything seems like magic to you he's like what are you talking about he's like yeah like the water one one molecule of water you can understand you know all the physics everything but then you get many many millions of molecules of water and all of a sudden they do things like have fluid dynamics and pressure and current and uh mentions all these other things that you know make the the fluid dynamics a hard and interesting science and like you're like oh no we don't get it it's an emergent property how could many (laughs) many waters do this (laughs) and that's the human he's like the human's like what does that have to do with anything it's like yeah you can totally get like how one synapse works or how one uh transistor works but all of a sudden you put a whole bunch of transistors together and emergence of intelligence happens and it can talk to me oh my god how is that happening and uh it, it you know the, the the joke the comic does it much much better than i was just doing but basically the idea that humans when there's a whole lot of something humans are not able to track all of it and so it breaks down in their minds and feels magical to them which actually is strangely related to the strong post we're going to talk about later nice. but it's ultimately just a whole lot of small things interacting and that there's nothing magical about that except for you know the fact that we can't track all of it and so therefore we feel ignorant of it and therefore it feels magical I mean, yeah, I I think the difference there is like, there's a difference between understanding the brain processes involved for making consciousness happen. Like, Mm -hmm. again, it's, it's possible that, uh, well, it's likely that in the future, in the not too distant future, we'll have some understanding of like, oh, here's how we can put a thought in someone's head. They already have like cool neural implants for people like with a I heard about one with a woman with extreme depression whose life just wasn't worth living. They did some neural implants and this, they are able to monitor when like the depression, I don't know, is happening at its hardest and just send counter signals and and it essentially cured her depression. Um, Oh, that's awesome. Or at least made it more bearable. We can, we can do that, but I I guess maybe the hard problem is a why question. It's, it's like, why, why is my perception of uh, whatever my, my water bottle here, why does it feel like anything at all instead of just happening without any internal experience and to say, well, internal experience just happens when you have neurons in that, you know, put together. That's a lot like saying, well, sparks just happen when you, you know, rub sheepskin and, and uh, copper together. Like, yes, it's true, but it doesn't explain why. Okay. I assume that if I had a lot more uh, 
time and also knowledge. I could explain all the little bits that go together into how thoughts propagate and how attention and focus changes and how it can be turned in upon itself. And that creates the feeling of consciousness. Um, but I don't have that time or that expertise. Or to be honest, even that knowledge, I would be bullshitting through at least half that. So I, I wouldn't want to do that. I'd want to get an expert to actually do that so that they could uh, not lie to you <laughs> when they're unclear about something. The experts all seem unsure. I, it, it, there isn't, as far as I am going to understand yet, somebody who's like, oh, I've solved the hard problem. I, I do see some people who say basically there is no hard problem. Once you know how neurons work, especially how neurons work as a group, there there just isn't the problem and other people don't accept it. It could be. Including including some some um neurobiologists who are like, Yeah, no, um I, I don't accept that this is the end. There must be something more. And uh so, you know, but I think there's there's at least some people who are like, Yeah, we, we figured it out. Hmm. There there just isn't a problem. Uh, maybe maybe they're right. Maybe maybe the majority of us are are just missing, are are looking for a deeper why than there is. In any case, uh, you pulled up this this thing of rationality quotes here, and we it, it joyously yeah. uh, segued into philosophy stuff. Um, it did that's why this is the self indulgent episode. We yeah, can, we can dis, dis digress however we wish to. Um, I have a question for you. What did you think about the Polyamory episode? Did you have thoughts about it? Because you were not there for that one, but I remember you said you listened to it. Oh, yeah. It was fun. Um, I am trying to think of... I think I am 98% in agreement with Yassine. Like, I think he said everything I, I would have said just better. Um, yeah. Certainly, I, I definitely share his frustration with Ayla's um, I can use words however I want kind of redefining of polyamory. Um, I don't think that's what she's doing. I, I liked his uh, follow-up post where I think he explains it really well. And uh, I think we'll have him on to talk about that at some point because it was definitely enjoyable enough to talk about at length. But the post, if uh, anyone wants a, a sneak peek, is um, Monopoly Restricted Trust on ymaskut.substack.com. What was Ayla's thing? Like, oh, it's just we don't have constraints on each other's behavior or whatever. Yeah, the primary thing about poly relationships is that you don't you don't put any restrictions on what your partner does with other people. I mean, I mean, so his example, and I kind of wanted to ask you about this was like, you know, is it not like an implicit thing that, you know, when you're with a primary partner that like she not fuck your dad? Like, <laughs> I mean, th there seems to be some kinds of unspoken sorts of things there, right? And maybe you're just going to bite that bullet and be like, no, I'll totally have dad sloppy seconds, but maybe you wouldn't. Um, the... It's interesting that you phrase it. I totally have dad sloppy seconds um, because that is not that feels I'm deliberately making it as gross as I'm making it as gross as possible. Yeah, yeah, because just before you said that, I was about to say, you know, I might just be happy for my dad. Like that'd be that'd be nice for him to finally, you know, get get a little bit of variety. I don't know. I don't know why I would be that upset about it, but maybe I am significantly outside of the norm and even most polyamorous people would not want someone sleeping with their father what about his uh example of like the harem it's like all right i've got i've got 50 women in my harem they can't sleep with anybody mm -hmm. except for me but i can sleep with whoever i want therefore yeah, very obviously not polyamory but it fits ayla's definition it does not uh it it would kind of fit the definition in that the women are poly and he's not but right even though they're only allowed to have sex with one person but he can have sex with as many as he wants so like it seems, yeah. it seems super counterintuitive 
it is outside of the distribution to such a large degree that I don't think this counts as an example at all. Like, if you have one person controlling and the other person not controlling, at that point, it's not even really a polyamorous relationship, in my opinion. Like, being forced into, not necessarily forced into, but the mutuality of it is pretty darn important, in my opinion. And I think monogamous people generally agree that they want their partners to be monogamous as well. Um, So I don't think this mutuality is a weird thing that I'm imposing on the definition. I think this is just generally expected. The mutuality isn't actually part of Ayla's definition. No, it's not. But, you know, maybe it should be. That's part of the weirdness of it is that like to her, it quote, it doesn't matter if they're acting on it or not. It doesn't matter if you don't feel like banging anybody else. As long as your partner could go have sex with slash love someone else if they wanted, then to me, that's polyamory. And so, again, you know, the, the, the guy who gets to fuck all the women he wants is not polyamorous, but all the women who are doting on him are, even though they only get to have sex with one person. It, it, it also has like this weird impotentia thing of like whether or not someone's actually doing something versus like just their, their dispositions, right? I mean, can you be gay if you've never slept with a dude? Uh, I mean, that that's a good... I was gonna say rejoinder, but we're not arguing. That that's a good that's a good uh, um, intuition pump, and right. it, it seems so. But like it's it would also seem weird to say that someone's gay because they could have sex with somebody of the same sex, they just haven't yet, but they're free to. It's not about wanting to; it's about the freedom. I mean, I, I do think it's about the wanting to, but the not the not to, not to Ayla. It doesn't matter if you if you want to. It doesn't matter if you're acting on it or not. Uh, I it, think it's, the... it's the idea that they could. Yeah. Does the fact that you could have sex with with a guy mean make you gay? All right, so what is the most important defining aspect of monogamy? Um, I guess that's I should know this as a as someone who's in a uh, a straight monogamous relationship. I'm not the best person to ask. I will say uh, on the spot something along the line. I, I, yeah, I guess if it's if you're going to do strict monogamy, it's like, hey, look, we we save the sex stuff for each other, right? Yeah, that I mean that that's basically the definition of monogamy is you only do sex stuff with this one other person you've decided to do it with, and they likewise only do it with you. And polyamory is basically under her definition, just not that, which is, I think, a perfectly serviceable definition and generally what people mean by it. They're like, yeah, we're, we're basically not monogamous. Well, I mean, what's what's the commonly accepted? Uh, you know, I, I think the common like the, the, the practical usage of it is like the practice or desire for multiple concurrent romantic or sexual relationships, mm-hmm. which is distinct from just not forbidding your partner from having those relationships. Right. I mean, sometimes you don't desire more relationships, even when you only have zero or one. And that doesn't make you not poly, just like sometimes you don't want to be in any relationship, but that doesn't make you not gay. I feel like it's it's complicating things in a way that that's confusing. And, and her. Um... I think the reason I like it so much is because the way it is phrased is very much dependent on the circumstances that you find yourself in of you know, relationships or wanting more relationships or something like there's an, ob- an object out there in the universe being a partner that defines whether you're poly or not. And her definition is much more just like, no, this is just this is who you are. This is your personality. And whether or not you have these partner objects in your life doesn't particularly matter. I suppose I still think that the the harem example is it, it fits enough into the definition and yet seems to violate it that I, I don't think it's a good definition. This is weird that some monogamous people think that that example is at all a counterexample because it is just so weirdly out of the norm that I don't... It, it seems absolutely obviously not poly. I would say it's obviously not poly too. 
but yeah. but it's hard to see how it how it isn't uh, according to Ayla's definition because he's putting restrictions on the ladies, but they're not on him, so they're all polyamorous. Yeah. No, but but no. by this step, by by the by the word of the definition, as long as we're arguing, okay. as long as we're arguing by definition, <laughs> all definitions fail at the extreme edges because that's no definition is completely robust. I think there's even a famous book about this or a theorem or something along the lines. Isn't Gödel Escherbach about this? Nothing can be completely self consistent and um, comprehensive. I'm a poser, so, yeah. and I just bought that book 15 years ago and haven't read it yet. So. I mean, I've never read it either, but I hear that's what it's about. So, yeah, there's there's places where the definition breaks down and you can find those places. But like that is true of every definition ever. And I, I just don't think it is very pertinent. It, it's very easy to say, yeah, that's that's not. No, I mean, so like here's the thing is like I feel like my partner could go have sex with slash love someone else if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that makes me polyamorous because we we're, we're in practice not doing that. Okay. So like And you would like still be okay with it in a relationship with her and all that? Yeah, I mean it, it the thing is is like we, we currently have a norm, the two of us, of whatever not doing that. So if mm-hmm. that if that were to change suddenly and without notice, that would be I don't know, um distressing. Well, at least an unwelcome surprise, you know? Like yeah. so it it would have to be like a conversation. Um right. but yeah, I mean you know, then then I I can't see where the problem would be with it. But it's not uh, the the fact that we're like not practicing that it seems to be like a very important difference uh, yeah. between. I mean, it feels like you're functionally monogamous, but not like obligate monogamous. I mean, I suppose, but I mean, isn't that kind of I? It's like saying that like you know I'm functionally straight, but I could go have sex with other guys. So like you might as well call me you know whatever bi. Like, no, I would say if you're functionally straight, then basically you're straight. The, the definition here seems to imply that, like, no, no, Stephen, that's 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 textbook poly. If you if you read this this new textbook I put out, uh, <laughs> but but it it doesn't seem to jive with common use or or intuition. And then then it just begs the question of like, why redefine it in a way that's confusing? Um, that is something I would like to talk to Ayla about because I have a theory, but I don't want to like put things out there without getting her input on it yeah of course no no that makes sense but uh no. you just asked my thoughts on it so that was that was the thing is i, I shared his frustration there um, okay. i think that he said he would divorce uh his wife if if she came home and said she had sex with somebody else um yeah. and I, I i definitely wouldn't so that that's one area of, of like whatever non-overlap that we have but i think it's just different expectations that we have um mm-hmm. anyway i'll i'll uh leave it there it was really surprising to me on the discord how many like basically all the poly people were like, yeah, okay, seems a little, maybe little weird definition, but basically fine. And a lot of monogamous people were really upset about the idea that the definition implied that monogamous people put restrictions on their partners. Uh, that like that was just very viscerally bad feeling for them. And I mean, I kind of understand that, but like on the other hand, that is literally the point of monogamy. And um, I see where the disconnect's coming from then. Okay. This, this new definition is nice in that it's nice for poly people in that it's a good solid dig at mono people because they're they're those evil pricks who are who are controlling the lives of their <laughs> of their so-called loved ones uh-huh. and uh for the rest of us it's like no we just we just don't do that you know like you know is is my wife allowed to burn the house down like right. i mean i it it's not a it's it's we've never talked about it um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's the kind of thing though, that would make me seriously question our bond if, uh, she burnt the house down, especially with me in it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so it, 
it's not so much a restriction on her behavior as it is like an expectation that we've set for each other, even implicitly. She's also free to whatever, try to kill me, but she, she won't or she, she shouldn't, yeah. right? That would also be a violation of our relationship. Is it a constraint? Am I, am I putting restrictions on her by saying, please don't stab me in my sleep? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I mean that only kind of rhetorically. Actually, I do agree with you. And I think this is why she is using this definition. And I think it is a good thing because it, in at least in my opinion, it kind of points out that um, trying to phrase this in a politically not stupid way. No, don't pull your punches. Go nuts. Like what is socially acceptable is decided by society, right? We all agree that burning down the house you guys live in, not socially acceptable, may be a good reason for divorce. The thing that has been, I don't want to say shouted from the rooftops, just a such a strong concrete underlying norm and pushed by normie society for, I don't know, centuries at least has been that oh if there's any sort of um sleeping with other people in a relationship that is as bad as burning a house down and the person who did it is automatically at fault and the other person is completely free of any relationship blame and society will support the the other person this extends to things like well is it okay to kiss other people no obviously not that might lead to sleeping is it okay to flirt with other people no definitely not can you talk with other people well okay it's all right in the workplace and maybe you're allowed to have some opposite sex friends but don't get too close etc and the i get the feeling that part of her reason for choosing this specific definition is in fact to push back and say actually you guys are complete asshats this should not be a default societal expectation that people do not sleep with other people that is restrictive and actually that is a bad thing and you can if you want to have this thing where we agree um not to sleep with other people but that should be a new additional consideration and having it be the default in society is horseshit and if you hear that one person slept with another person outside of a relationship, it shouldn't be like, oh, my God, that is awful. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Having that societal norm is absolute awful. And instead, it should be like, oh, oh, OK, interesting. How did you feel about that kind of thing? And uh, maybe consider each individual uh, case separately. I mean, I, I'm on board with all of that, but that seems uh, maybe I'm just an outlier monog- monogamy practitioner or... I don't know, I grew up watching different TV or something, but cause like that's definitely the case, whatever nineties sitcoms, you know, but that was coming up on Wait, 40 years ago, 90 sitcoms? you know, Oh, you know, my, my, my gal stepped out on me. She's, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. It, you know, her, her, her. So like, mm-hmm. but I mean, it, I don't know. It, it's hard to see how a rebranding of like, well, actually they're the controlling asshats. I think it's, I think it's a lot like calling atheists brights. <laughs> okay and you know sub- implying then that the religious are the dims like it's ah i see you know i mean that's i think that's why brights never took off i think that was only mm-hmm. daniel dennett uh nice try bro but i i it it never worked for me um was that daniel dennett that tried to do that i know he's at least pushing i don't know if he originated it okay but it's like if you if you could recast something that makes the other people the obvious bad ones it, it's it's a yay us kind of move if, if you define Republican as anybody who is pro uh, small government or whatever, this is actually a bad analogy. I was going to say then that that tax on this other stuff, but like I, I don't know. It just seems like it, it's 
it's not so sneakily putting in a bunch of baggage that people don't want to adopt. It's like, of course, like the people who are in the group that it's shitting on are saying we don't like this definition, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's kind of like it's saying like I'm I'm not anti-choice if I'm against abortion because you know I think choices and all other things are good. This is just one particular area where that choice shouldn't be offered. And uh, but the pro-choice people are like, yeah, but you're you're literally saying she shouldn't have the choice to have an abortion, so you are an anti-choice person, kind of thing. Right? And you also hate women and all that stuff. Or right, like, yeah. you know, to me, a good a good definition of atheist is like somebody who isn't convinced that that God exists, right? Mm-hmm. Or that gods, et cetera, exist. You know, mm-hmm. but if someone were to say, oh no, you know, atheists are people who who close their eyes and refuse to see the the light, and you know, shut God out of their hearts. Just running with that and saying that's the real definition makes it, it just as needlessly antagonistic. I mean, it's it's right from their perspective, but mm-hmm. I, so I think this is again not not so much like that, but it's 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 reminiscent of that. It, I think it's just a, a bad uh, practice, I guess, to to define something in this new way that you know happens to be awesomely self serving. I think I basically agree that the main thing that is driving the people apart on these sides, the Essenes and the Elas is the antagonistic part of the definition. And uh, I'm still not sure if I think it's needlessly antagonistic. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. It's, it's definitely thought-provoking. It's just, I don't know, it, it also just seems to have this weird thing where, again, it's like, in, in potential, uh, if they could, then that's polyamory. It seems to add a lot of stuff, but I'm, I feel like I'm talking in circles at this point. I'm not saying anything. Part of the reason I'm talking in circles is that I'm trying not just to re- regurgitate uh, Yassine's well-put words. <laughs> and so uh, I want to, you know, leave that to him to put it uh, as eloquently as he did rather than me just, you know, reading his post and pretending like I had that thought. So, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the main reasons I agree with Ayla and like her definition is that in addition to being technically accurate, um, it is, as you said, antagonistic, and I kind of like being antagonistic and pushing people a little bit. I've always been a bit, a bit that way, and especially when it comes to things like I, I have seen how shitty it is to try to be a polyamorous person in the wider society, and it's better in some places, uh, especially if like you're in a blue city. There's a lot of refuges, refuge, refuges, refuges areas of refuge you can go to where you're mostly okay but it still kind of sucks and that sparks the sort of i want to fight you instinct with me and so when someone comes out with this definition that is like hey come at me bro i'm like yeah come at us (laughs) like the i and then and then i realize okay i'm I'm being antagonistic to people like yasin and 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 uh steven these are good people they're basically on my side i like them i shouldn't antagonize them but on the other hand i'm like oh i'm restricting mother effers you if you had to live with this shit you'd be upset too kind of thing you know i gotta i gotta realize that's maybe that's not the best instinct yeah if if it's an emotional reaction to that then you know that's perfectly understandable but it does seem politically unsavvy to turn people who are like totally on your side to saying, actually, you guys are the shit people. And it's like, well, <laughs> like, you know, you're losing allies really fast. And, uh, you know, if you if you want societal change, then you need to, mm, I don't know, resist the impulse to just get in nice punches to the to your in group. So, you know, mm-hmm. punch them hard enough that they become your out group. <laughs> right. It's very common failure mode nowadays. I think it kind of maybe always has been, but it seems like you see it all over now. Um, yeah. But yeah, not, not to say I don't understand. Well, I, I don't perfectly understand the frustration, uh, but I can understand that there is a frustration there, you know, that is that is coming out in this that I uh, I can sympathize with. It's just not one of those things that uh, really 
seems worth again the uh the effort to try and rebrand mm-hmm. in a way but mm-hmm. uh you know it, again like like the atheists you know had had their their share of gripes lot lots of lots of fun making and in, in, in directions of non-believers etc um his you know historical uh atrocities yada yada but like you know if you've got a lot of uh nice and uh amicable allies who are either like vaguely or barely religious or even non-religious they just don't like you know whatever they're not as steadfast as atheists or something mm-hmm. to say well you know all religious people are just are just dipshit morons who think there's a bearded guy in the clouds watching them jerk off like it <laughs> it's again technically true but super unhelpful right mm-hmm. you're certainly not going to win any wars of of ideas by being uh antagonistic that way Unless I'm not aware of any wars that have been won by being that antagonistic. I'm aware, I'm aware of lots of wars being started and fought that way, but I'm not sure if anyone ever actually wins that way. Well, I mean, if you, we're talking actual wars, usually there's a lot of antagonism and somebody wins. Well, I mean, I, war of ideas, you know. Okay. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of conflicts uh, of ideas start that way, but to, to, have, to win a war of ideas, you need, you need the majority to win. And if you're telling the supermajority that they all suck, you're never going to, right? <laughs> I think that's... That's mostly true. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's always where like th- this this brushes up against culture worry stuff. But it's like any any group that's like you know all all X suck in you know sub for X where X makes up something like fifty percent of the people, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, but we want you know we want equality, we want this, we want that, but also all of you guys suck. And it's like, well, yeah. you know, you, you you're gonna have a hard time coming out on top or even coming out on level when you're mm-hmm. telling the people you know, the, the majority of people that they suck. Um, See, I was, I was talking, I, I agree with you, basically. I, I was talking about, um, about this with Jen not too long ago, because she is like, just one of the kindest, most generous people I know. Just, just legit, really kind, always trying to understand people and, and meet them on their ground and stuff. And I was, I was being a little bit more pushy backy and fighty on a certain topic. And she was like, Oh God, that makes me so uncomfortable. And, I agree. I agree with you. I do think the kindness and the meeting people where they are and inviting them in is the best way to solve these things. This is why I really liked our episode of um, street, episti- street epistemology back in the day, where it was just about like being friendly and inviting people to explain things and asking them questions, but not in a snarky, shitty way. You know, like all that stuff. I'm totally on board with that. But also... Sometimes I feel like it goes too far where you give too much of the benefit of doubt to somebody and then like just shitty bad actors get in and start taking advantage of that. And and I feel like there there really is something to be said for having like the the harder, spikier people around that are just like, you know what? No, fuck you. That's stupid. You're stupid. I'm not meeting you on this particular thing. And I realize you can't have everyone like that because then you just have eternal war forever. But also if you'd have complete softness and pillowiness, then that is almost as bad, maybe just as bad. No, I totally hear you. I mean, I tend towards the, like, let's assume this person has a valid point. It's coming from a place of honesty. And mm-hmm. that has bitten me, bitten me in the ass before where I thought people were engaging in good faith, but they weren't. I don't know. I mean, I guess the difference though, is that like, most people seem like they are engaging in good faith. And if I were to treat everybody or the majority of people like they weren't, then, mm-hmm. you know, I would just, I would A, be unhappier, but B, I think I'd also be wrong. Yeah. But what if it was the opposite where you were treating everyone or almost everyone as if they are uh, needing to be accepted and nice and stuff? Like, I, I almost feel like things are better when you have a, a 
a group of people that are diverse in that way or almost i i hate to bring this to like sex role stuff but it almost seemed like a neat hack that you would have to to procreate smash together a male and a female and that one of them was intrinsically kinder and nicer and more understanding and the other was intrinsically more like oppositional because then in any particular unit you would have each side represented and uh i know that's very you know stereotype leaning but also did seem to happen frequently so maybe not a coincidence that things shook out that way i don't know i'm not sure how that ties into the to the broader point though but it it's that's thought provoking um Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i i guess you know like i I have whatever barriers of like okay you know what i'm not going to engage this you know like i've never i haven't burnt time talking to somebody about the moon landing in 20 years you know you know i'm not mean or antagonistic towards them i'm just like no i'm not i'm not going to bother going there you know, like on our Discord, we we tolerate all sorts of dissent, but like you have to get pretty far out there, you know. Mm-hmm. But my, so my thing is, is like if if our intolerance of dissent amounted to you know keeping more than fifty percent of people out, it seems like uh, you're you're just setting yourself up for failure, or you just want to stay small and uh, marginalized, mm-hmm. which I think in some groups probably is the implicit goal. But I don't think that should be, and that that that's not any of my goals. Yeah, yeah. I kind of like staying small and marginalized. I think that has been one of the advantages of the rationalists is that we're weird enough um, and lacking in social graces enough. I mean, we've got some extremely socially graceful people, but there's such a um, minority that it keeps out a lot of people because they're like, okay, no, that group is too weird. I, I don't need to be associated with those kinds of folks. And I think that's good, actually, because it has resulted in us not being captured by those sorts of people. And I think maybe being small and weird is actually a good thing. And any movement that gets big enough is a movement that I am going to eventually have to not be a part of anymore, like kicked out even maybe, because eh, I think maybe being unpopular is a gift. I... Again, I, I think I, I understand the appeal of that, but I mean, that seems to just, it, it's like then the goal of, of, you know, the rationalist movement such as it is, is to not have too big of an impact and not, or, you know, not, not, not impact too many minds less to become popular. And that seems insane. Like, would, I, would, wouldn't it be cool if like that this was a savvy or a, uh, a catchy and, and exciting enough thing that every elected official, you know, who, who hadn't read the sequences was like, that was the margin. I don't think so. I, I think there's enough people who are different enough from us neurologically that they would not be served by having only politicians that have at least read the sequences in office. I'm, I, I've come much more along to the lines of our goal should be to make our communities as good and as wonderful as possible for people like ourselves and not necessarily try to make this for everyone. Hmm. I don't know. I guess... For me, I think it's a it's a winning life strategy, and then I, therefore I want everyone to have it. And if more people yeah. did, maybe you know we wouldn't have so many companies rushing to build super intelligence before we knew what the hell we were doing about it, right? Like, right. So it at, at the cost of us staying small and uh, unpopular, you know, all we got was the end of the world, right? But <laughs> but at least we were small and unpopular yeah. the whole time. <laughs> oh so, shit! Um, <laughs> I, On the other hand, we've been extremely influential. And in proportion to our numbers. Yeah. I, I just think that, that the end goal of raising the sanity to waterline is getting, you know, more sane people, you know, and, and I use reading sequences as a shorthand just for whatever being into yeah, this sort yeah. of stuff at all. Um, yep. 
Like, look, there's this entire group of hippies out there who've never had the slightest idea what rationalism is, calling themselves post-rationalists just because we've had enough of an impact on the the cultural meme space that uh that that's a thing you want to be now to be cool to be post that right because then you know you're less mainstream again i guess yeah, yeah. It, it it seems like a, a weird kind of pointless trap to fall into but mm. i do understand that you know like i'm not a democrat but i vote i vote blue on essentially every ticket right mm. like but but i don't like the the big handle because you know since it's so big it's got so much baggage you know, that seems like the other side of where this could lead is, well, you know, we don't want it to get so big and messy that it, it gets polluted with all this nonsense uh, or that you have to sign on with with everything to be part of it or something. But I mean, I want everybody to, to have the basic tools, you know, yeah. and, and I fail to see how the world would be worse if that was the case. Yes. Having all the basic tools at least be available for people to 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 learn them if they want them. Yeah. Speaking of influence on the cultural space um i i want to digress onto nick bostrom do you have any opinions on nick well okay first of all i think i'm going to say i love nick bostrom but do you have any opinions on nick bostrom and then more specifically do you have any opinions on how the media treats nick bostrom i don't really know the media treats nick bostrom uh not being you know my my only source of news mainly being uh my wife and the mind killer um Mm. so I, I have I have no idea if he's beloved or if they if they make fun of him. I like the guy. I think he wrote he's he's written and continues to write important stuff. I have a couple of disagreements with like the specifics of this of his simulation argument that he's popular for. Mm-hmm. But no, overall, I like him. Why do you ask? Because this came up very recently and very much annoyed me. And since this is a self indulgent episode, I'm going to self indulge on this. Do it particular thing. Uh, Nick Bostrom, uh, great dude, has been like way back in the original less wrong big poster like deep og rat uh he's awesome and uh he is the one who eventually i mean there's been more multiple like this but probably one of the most famous people who eventually went into academia and got actual credentials that uh are respected by the greater world he's a professor at oxford now he has written super intelligence and often gets um media accolades for being the guy who is bringing the rationalist ideas more outside of rationalism and into wider academia, wider intellectual spaces than just the people who uh, are on the internet, right? Yeah, and I think that stuff's really important, and that, that, yeah. that goes back to me thinking that the you know the the tools and and knowledge should be wider spread. Exactly. Yeah. So yes, I, I I love Nick. I've never met him personally, but you know from what of what what of his writings I've read, they're great. He does really good work. Everything, nothing but mad props for him. But like recently on the Discord, we were talking about info hazards, and somebody asked about like, can we deep dig down a little bit on just what we're talking about here when we're talking about info hazards? And there was a quote posted from some reference. I'm not sure what reference it was, something Wikipedia related or um, a reference source that cited the info hazard concept as introduced by Nick Bostrom in 2011. (laughs) And this really irritated me because Rocco's Basilisk happened in 2010. So at the very, very latest, Info hazards were a thing that were a big concept of much discussion on the less wrong forums in 2010. So at least a year before when it cites as the origination of the term. And also, it wasn't Nick Bostrom that came up with it. It was 
I mean, more likely than not, it was Eliezer Yudkowsky, honestly. He is the the father of many of these things. If not him specifically, then like the wider, less wrong community and discourse, which he is the shepherd and originator of. So if anyone were to actually attribute this to one single person, it would rightly be Eliezer Yudkowsky. If they didn't want to go that far, then they could say originated from like the that strong rationalist community uh, in the late 2010s. The fact that the media always goes to Nick Bostrom really irritates me, not because of anything Nick Bostrom does, but specifically because these fuckers like at the New York Times, they tr- they feel to me very much like um, in, in the ancient nobility, if a commoner were to come up with some amazing insight and present it uh, to court or somewhere, then a noble would have to take credit for it. And all the other nobility would uh, then be like, why, yes, did you know that Sir Lord so-and-so discovered this fascinating thing about the universe? And that commoner would never be mentioned because obviously all the nobles know that all good ideas come from other nobles. And like in the early um, 19th, maybe early 20th century, any scientific discovery Almost any scientific discovery that was made by a woman would be attributed to a male coworker instead. I was going to say that, but I didn't want to be. I, didn't, I thought that'd be provocative. Uh, yeah, no, they got almost no citations because obviously, obviously, the idea must have come from a man, right? Like, right. Women just don't have those sorts of ideas, and it it is very much the same sort of thing where. Obviously, if a good idea came about, it is be it is from someone who was trained and credentialed by us, the good people. Like the the idea that somebody who is outside of academia and has not gotten the credentialing and the training could have a good idea is just it's we don't even consider that. How how silly! And that really makes me want to stab like the people at the New York Times or wherever else it is that does this kind of thing, because just the complete dismissal of anyone who is not part of their rarefied elite cast as having something to contribute makes me want to not be kind and generous to them. <laughs> that's that's funny. I mean, funny in the, the you know, not haha funny. Um, mm-hmm. No, I, I feel you. And it's interesting because like, there's like downstream effects of this too, right? I, and I don't think it's just the New York Times. Like, you know, and, and also because a lot of these ideas kind of came from whatever niche corners of the internet that like, I think are understandable that a lot of people just don't know who originated it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a funny moment when Yudkowsky was on Sam Harris's podcast years ago. And uh, Harris wanted to ask him about Bostrom's thought experiment about the paperclip maximizer. <laughs> yes, I remember and, this. And he's like, I, I think as far as I know, it was me. Who, mm-hmm. who invented that? Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it's like, you know, Bostrom may, probably wrote about it in a public, in a whatever, more public way first. And mm-hmm. so, you know, maybe he included citations and just people who talked about it didn't. But actually, I assume he didn't include citations for that in particular because Yudkowsky himself couldn't find them. Uh, okay. You know, he, he gets he gets uh, credit for things that he gets credit for sharing ideas that like he didn't necessarily invent. But right. you know, he, I don't think there's anything wrong with popularizing them. But you're saying that the, the issue there is that people then assume that the idea must have come from him. Right. And well, no, no, that's not the thing. Like, because he was on the less wrong forums at that time. He helped refine these things. Even he was part of the originating crew, right? Like, I got no beef with him. I got beef with the people who just automatically reflexively are like, obviously, the dude with the degree who's a professor at one of the most prestigious universities is the one who came up with this. And and keep perpetuating that so that it becomes truth in the public mind. That really annoys the fuck out of me. Maybe as a person with no degree myself, uh, I, I feel this way. But like, I just I think the credentialing is such a nobility in the blood kind of thing. 
that it annoys me. It definitely certainly can be, huh? Because on the one hand, it's a useful heuristic. You know, if um, if someone's telling you about their cool new astrophysics theory for, you know, insert thing I don't understand, right? Dark matter, right? It's not unreasonable for me to ask what their credentials are. Mm-hmm. Because if it's like, oh, well, they're homeless and they and they scream this from the street corner, you know, seven <laughs> hours a day, then, uh-huh. I, you know, and they can't read. Then I'm like, okay, well, I can kind of just not bother to read, you know, to listen to the ramblings that I'm going to go ahead and save my seven hours. But if it's like, oh, no, you know, this this, this person is is a tenured professor at Oxford, then it's like, oh, okay, you know, some, some, again, nobles have deemed that this, that this person has uh, enough know-how to, to put them on their short list. So like it, it's a useful heuristic, but it's not uh, it, it's heuristic for a reason. It's it's not a um, it's not a perfect rule, right? I guess I'm just agreeing with you. Um, okay. But but I'm I'm just pointing out that like it's I think it's a, it's a reasonable error for people to make, even if they're not like uh, thinking in terms of like, well, you have to have a credentials to be to having an idea what you're talking about, kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, and I think certainly the rationalist community, more than other ones I'm involved with, like really don't give a shit about credentials. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what Zvi's credentials are because it's never come up in anything that I've read of his or that he's talked about. Right. Yeah. Uh, maybe he's a doctor. I have no idea. Uh, right. But you know, it's like, I still, I'll still take his word on everything. He's writing about COVID things like that. We're, we're kind of past the, Oh, you need this badge from this institution to, to be worth listening to. Um, yeah. Maybe because we have so many examples of people that, you know, clearly are smart that don't have those. And that people, yeah. that people that do have those that say they're pointless, like, you know, Robin Hansen and uh, who's the other George Mason guy? Why am I blinking on his name? Kaplan. Kaplan. That's the one. Okay. Yeah. Kaplan wrote the case against education. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, but also a bunch of people that we see that do have de- degrees that just say absolutely stupid shit. Right. It is really funny to think about a professor writing a book that says that you there's no real point in coming to my class. Uh, mm. I mean, I don't think that that sentence is in his book, but it, it's, it seems to be implied. Yeah, uh, uh, that is a professor with some balls, man. Yeah, I respect that. And you know, professor with 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 enough balls to tell his institution that, like, you know, you're you're paying me for a job that really doesn't need to exist, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I'm still collecting a paycheck. Do you want thing mm-hmm. to do it like once you retire or something? But th- this just brings to mind like kind of the other side of that coin of um, media attention, where it's like I think some people get more than they deserve for s- sometimes a good reason, sometimes bad reasons. Um, you know, like, uh, Ray Kurzweil got, a, I mean, he was like the leading guy 20 years ago talking about whatever technology stuff in the popular culture. Right. Cause some of his stuff is like a little out there. It's kind of easy to dismiss everything that he's talking about as kind of, uh, the, in the domain of, of quackdom, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it, it sort of does a disservice that way. Um, I'm trying to think of like, there's another example, like Michi Yukaku was, he was one of the people who kind of filled like Carl Sagan's shoes of public science communicator on TV. Yeah. And one thing I really didn't like about him, he, he you know, a lot of things I did like, he, he's clearly smart. I think he's, he's great at explaining stuff. He's clearly passionate. He has the mad scientist hair, which is great. Um, <laughs> what I didn't like is, and I remember noticing this before I even heard a conjunction fallacy was like, he would talk about things and give so many specifics of what technology will mm-hmm. be like. And he's like, oh, yeah, by this time, you know, we'll have wallpaper that you can interact with, you know, and this might have been before touchscreens, you know, but but like for him to give and I can't remember all the specific details of the things that he's laying out. But I just remember that it was like way more than was warranted by the idea of like technology getting smaller, which was the thesis that he was, you know, arguing for. Yeah. Um, 
And I felt like he was doing a disservice there by, cause like that, that didn't come, that hasn't yet come to pass. Right. And so if you had just said, you know, Hey, things are going to get smaller to get more and more tech that we have around us all the time. That's great. But then you get, you add in all these specifics. Well, then you're more likely to be wrong in your like super specific predictions. And then mm-hmm. kind of your whole message gets, I think just washed with the future historical fact of like you actually being wrong about the, the nitty gritty when you weren't wrong about the big picture, but then all yeah. people, all people remember is that you're wrong. Yeah, I think he started to get a bit more into like sensationalization too, like just making things even more th- than they really were just just because he got a lot of positive feedback for that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you don't get on TV for saying boring stuff. Yeah, yeah. And even, so even, if, even if it's boring, stuff. true stuff. Right, so starting to maybe veer into stuff that is more questionable in its scientific veracity. Yeah, and you know, I can't blame him. And I think on net he's doing, or you know, did. I, again, all my all my information here is over a decade old. Um, I, I'm sure I think he had a very net positive uh, impact. It's just, it's one of those things of like, it seems one of those perverse incentives. Uh, you know, that's why I like podcasts that um, like Sam Harris's, you know, where like audience capture isn't really a risk because he's not, he, he doesn't really care mm-hmm. about the numbers, you know, but like the second that you start caring about your download count too much and certainly once it gets big enough and you like want, uh, it becomes a revenue stream or something. Mm-hmm. then it's like, well, I better keep putting out what my audience likes. And then now I'm going to start doing, you know, seven things of whatever with a picture of my face with my mouth open, you know, in this big grabby headline or something, right? Like every fucking YouTube thumbnail, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because, well, that's what that's what gets downloads. And so uh, <laughs> I, think, I think that's a common trap mode that is just kind of a bummer. It is. And especially like, because does it actually work? I don't know. I guess it, it, it must does for a while. But who was it? We were talking recently with someone, I think, who said that, like, these things go in cycles. Like, remember the old top 10 lists, number seven will shock you. Like, those, everybody was doing that because they worked, but only for a while. After, like, a year, people got wise to, like, oh, this is clickbait. There's nothing of value here. And they just stopped clicking on it. And so a while after that, they disappeared. And now you don't see very many of those anymore. Yeah. I can't wait for that to happen with the people with their mouths open looking shocked on YouTube thumbnails. (laughs) I know. God. You know, and it's always like an exclamation mark and a question mark. And yeah. and it's like, no, I, I just want to watch the video on how do I fix the the, the lining <laughs> on my refrigerator, you know? Like, like what I found behind this lining shocked me. Yes. God. It, it's like it's like reading recipes online. That's why I never did that anymore either. Well, do we want to get into uh, some of the feedback? Yeah, for sure. Matt, our current episode that I am recording with Stephen is a bunch of self-indulgent chatting about things that are interesting and listener feedback uh, and things along those lines. We also talked about the poly episode a bit because Stephen wasn't there for that. And I was reminded that in the Discord, you said two things, which I wanted to get your opinion on right after that episode came out. The first one, no, not your opinion, but like deep dive deep, a little, little deeper in there. Sure. You, if you are okay with that. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. You posted, so far this episode has actually been meaningfully helpful in finally making it really click to me that, oh, people are just really different for real. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> which which was, a first of all, a beautiful sentiment, but like, how how did that make it click? What was what was going on there? Um, yeah. So I think I think the, the mundane way of phrasing it is just you go through life and you assume that everyone thinks about relationships and you know, gender and and dating and what they're looking for out of life the same way you do. Um, uh, At least I feel like this is a common human tendency and it, and it takes data and updating to realize like, Oh no, people can be different in all of those ways that I just listed. And, you know, I, I, I'm probably 
like a fairly central example of like a monogamous oriented person where like mm-hmm. the, the thing that I have have always like wanted out of life at a at a deep level you know prior to even re- really asking myself the question is just like well yeah you 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 date so that you can find the one soulmate true love um uh person who who will be your your princess leia to your han solo uh, or, or, or or whatever <laughs> you know whatever floats your boat personally and and the, the episode as it went on it was just really like like hitting over and over from different angles this idea of like no matt not everyone is is looking for that they were never looking for that it's not like they started out looking for that and then they gave up on it and decided to be poly they just were never looking for that they they don't see relationships that way they don't want the same thing out of life as you and that was interesting that was um useful to me because i had i had previously just been sort of bemused and befuddled by the whole poly thing which you know i understand you're 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 part of and i was just like okay sure like i get wanting i get wanting to have like sex with people that that's not mysterious to me but it's like but what's the end game though Eniash? what's what what are you when are you going to settle down you know and and it's like that's (laughs) and it's just like it was me not it was me kind of not getting the the architecture underlying the um the behavior I, i was assuming you had the same architecture as me yeah. which made your behavior inscrutable. And now I'm just like, oh, okay, it's, ah. it, I get it now. Okay, interesting. Is this like a a general update on stuff that needed hammering? Or like, did, had you already assumed this in other domains and it just got expanded to this one? Oh, yeah, I think probably just got expanded to this one or, or, or the, the you know, the, the axes on which people can be different from each other um, never occur to you until they're kind of shoved in your face is one way of saying it. Yeah. Like, yeah. like every, like, yes, I understand that people are different from each other, but you just, unless it's really forcefully brought home to you that this is a new axis on which you should consider that people are different from you, then you'll just not even see that as an axis. You'll just see that as like, well, yes, everyone, everyone feels this way. I mean, much like it's like everyone wants to not, you know, die horribly like like i don't I, I don't i don't think that's an axis along which people differ very much so i don't feel a need to update on that one but then there's like oh what people are looking for out of life when it comes to relationships and the opposite sex and so forth it's like oh yeah that that can vary quite a lot apparently in fact i just slipped in the opposite sex as if that's like a given it's like no of course that's not a given that's that's another variable along which um people can can vary quite a bit yeah fair enough one of my early interactions with learning this thing about people being different is that I don't know. I this is going to sound just extremely, extremely stupid. I think to a lot of people, but I was raised very much in the whole men and women are the same, and there's like no differences between them sort of mindset. Mm-hmm. So at at first, I assumed that like women want the same thing men want, and so I would <laughs> I at first tried to model behaviors that I found attractive in women, right, and as if that would draw women to me. And no, it turns out. Women like very different things than what men like. They they want you to perform masculinity and doing other things along those lines, which uh, was I, I did not update very much from that. I, I guess I just kind of thought, oh, women are weird in the sex way that they want different things than I would want. But um, took a long time to generalize that particular insight. Yeah, me too. Me too. I think that's fairly common. I mean, I think I, I see the same thing happening from from the other side too, where very often women think that that men want out of women what women want out of men and that's not true either so um a lot of confusion here actually yeah terrible it's, it is it's it's just horrible yeah <laughs> 
Well, I'm glad we're getting somewhere as <laughs> as we get older and understanding things. Yeah, it only took more than half of a normal average human life to get here for both yeah. of us. Great. I I sometimes get just a little bit of bitterness over the the lies I was told, and I'm like, okay, I they they must have known this. Some people must have known this at some point, and I understand the good impulse of like you got to treat everybody the same, and so we just tell our kids everybody's the same. But man, does it fuck you over in some ways? I, I kind of see that as being an interesting segue to the to, to possibly the second thing you wanted to talk about. Yes, you mentioned having this power. <laughs> <laughs> yes it, yes it's it is possible to learn but not for a jedi um it's uh so do you do you want to i almost want to hear you describe what you think i was trying to communicate because i kind of feel like as sometimes happens in discord conversations i um i i was mostly failing to make myself understood uh, this was I, almost the very next thing you posted, I believe. He says, uh, it's been unimaginable to me that people can't just choose not to lust after other people when they are in nominally committed monogamous relationships. But this conversation is making me realize maybe not everyone has that brain switch. Yeah. You have you have a brain switch where you just aren't attracted to other people? What? I don't what's going on? Yeah, well, I mean, so so first of all, calling it a switch is obviously a metaphor. Like it's it, it's a choice. And it's like uh, probably just due to being raised in a very southern um, sort of uh, you could call it an honor culture. I, I've I've often thought that that of, of the different like cultures that Scott Scott Alexander writes about, I probably come from a cavalier culture actually, um, mm. which would be like honor and like I would totally have duels if people would duel me <laughs> and 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 stuff. Um, not not that I'm even endorsing this as like a way to live or, or saying that it's moral it's just like that's kind of right. the way my psychology is structured and and so the idea is like if you engage in the sacred ritual the, the sacred ancient ancient ritual of going steady with a with a girl <laughs> um and you're and you wear your gingham button-down shirt to the to the county dance with them and so forth that you're you're like honor bound to do right by that by that woman and that means you you do whatever's in your power to not stray and that you know includes stuff like don't look at pretty girls in fact try not even to notice that there is a pretty girl okay so i i mean i'm pretty much on board with all that and i understand what you're saying yeah. but also the whole don't look at pretty girls it feels like the whole i don't know the there are four lights almost kind of thing like how how can you do that without just being in this constant prison of being afraid to to look anywhere? Um, I don't. I I, I think that you, I think you're not wrong. Um, I think that a lot of human psychology often looks like a there there are four lights situation. Like you and I were raised religious. There there are a lot of there are four lights um, situations yeah. that arise in being religious where you're like. Um, the, the most classic of which is just like, uh oh, I felt myself just have a question about religion that felt mm -hmm. vaguely blasphemous in my head just now. Um, I'd better do everything I can internally to disavow that or I'm going to burn in hell for eternity. And and the, so like I, I only mentioned that sort of extreme example as a way of saying like I think we have a lot of machinery for like um, internal dissociation from things that we don't approve of. And and it's not that unusual, 
So I'm not saying it's great or like, I'm, I'm actually not, I'm also not saying this is a great way to be like a integrated and psychologically healthy human being necessarily. Um, and I'm not, I'm not even saying I'm, I'm like selling this as a way to be. It's more like, I thought everyone was like this prior to listening to y'all's conversation. Like I, or, or I maybe, maybe hoped is a better word, which, which is interesting. Cause it's like, I've, I, I, I've, I've found, I've found people who cheat just perplexing. Cause I'm just like, but couldn't you just not, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't you, couldn't you just have, have chosen to not go down that path beforehand? Like I just, it just seems like a mistake. It seems like a very easily avoidable mistake. And because, because you had, you had, 10,000 opportunities to like, like I said, not notice the pretty girl was there and then not look at her and then not walk up to her and start up a conversation and then not ask if you wanted to meet up in a hotel room later, et cetera. <laughs> right. And, um, no, I mean, and, it, and I think it can, it's, it's, it's uh -huh. definitely a mistake and there's certain steps that you have to take along the way, but you said something along the lines of just like a little bit further up, you said, if you ask me, is X hot, I would still be able to say, yeah, according to objective beauty standards, but be able to avoid like feeling any particular way about that. Yeah, I, I think that's true. How? How could you not like be like, well, I, 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 that, <laughs> I guess this is my weird brain moment yeah. where you, you you literally just don't feel any sort of attraction or desire. I think, yeah, I, I think that's accurate. I think that's accurate. I think that um, like this feels like something that requires 10 years in a monastery in the mountains to master. <laughs> I, I'm trying to, you know, I, I wonder how much of this is just like different words for describing these like fuzzy mental handles we have in our heads that we never have occasion to explain to other people. But like, it seems to me very easy. Okay. So like done, I've done more than my share of meditation and like IFS type type practices and, and focusing and such. So like, I think I do have the right language for this. I'm just not sure if it will be accessible to other people. Like, so, so what happens is like you, it, it, in this hypothetical scenario, we're imagining where you have me in a, in a laboratory and I'm, I'm like, I'm in this scenario in a super committed relationship. And then you show me, you know, Scarlett Johansson walks in and, and you're like, Matt, what, is, what is your internal experience in this moment? Um, <laughs> it would probably be like, well, like the, the, I, I sense like an arising, felt sense which is something like desire and attraction and uh lust and, and all, all of these things that you would sort of expect but uh, like noticing it as it arises i just choose not to engage with it or give it any energy or give it any fuel or interact with it and i just sort of stonewall it and then it just sort of dies and goes away and i just kind of and then furthermore like knowing that that mental formation is there I just kind of continue keeping it from arising. So, so it's not that there's not a transient sense of that thing happening. It's, it's just that I do something about it very quickly on, on the time scale of like fractions of a second. And I don't think, I don't think you need to be a master meditator to do the thing I just described. You do need to have meditated and done a, a bunch of ridiculous navel gazing um, work to have the, the words to describe what I just described. Uh, but that, but, regardless of of that that's basically what what is happening in a person's head when they feel something and then and then clamp down on it and, and just dismiss it um can you do that with any emotion uh unless it's like super strong yeah sure um yeah i think so i, I think i think i think most people can is the difference is like the I, I think the disconnect in this in the conversation is that like i think i think this sort of thing is actually quite 
common and like this is what you know this is what this is what double think is or this is what like denying your inner sense of what is right and wrong looks like which people do all the time um Hmm. so they just don't they don't see themselves doing it is the difference they just feel like it's um um you know humans being in denial and and uh, being in conflict with themselves and so forth it's it's kind of the human experience right it's just uh the goal like the goal is to the sort of one one way of articulating the goal of a lot of spirituality is to not have those internal um inconsistencies you could say but uh and so when someone is said to finally snap or whatever that's when they encounter an emotion so strong that they can't do that and it actually i don't know overwhelms them or something yeah sure i think that makes sense okay yeah, I, I think right. um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a hell of a superpower. I, I I I you know appreciate that. I I still vaguely feel like I've failed to communicate because it's like, well, I feel like you do something similar. You maybe just don't do it for romantic attraction because for you, you don't you weren't raised in um in, in a context where you were like it was beaten into you that you needed to be able to master that part of yourself. Like, um, I mean, I, I think they tried and I just eventually rejected it. The Jehovah's uh-huh. Witnesses had a very strong, like, you shouldn't even date anybody until you are ready to marry because that's what dating is for. And uh, mm-hmm. you aren't ready to marry anybody while you're still in college. So don't do any dating until college is over kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you, I, I, you, you probably have like the normal amount of like male aggression. Is that is that accurate? Um, yes, I would say yes, overall, probably, sure. I do so a like, lot of work, you know, not acting on it, though. Yeah, well, that, and, and that's why I bring it up is like, um, I think you and I are probably, you know, great nonviolent men. But that doesn't mean we don't have an impulse to punch somebody every once in a while that we don't <laughs> yeah. act on. And and so the, it's it's not that much different from just like, feeling that very strong, you know, pre verbal free, pre rational desire to do the animal thing in this moment and, and, you know, punch somebody or, or, or whatever, whatever it is. And just being like, no, no, we're not doing that. We don't do that. We don't endorse that. That's not me. And, and then, and then that feeling goes away and, and and it's not like we then go home and like plot revenge. It's just like, that was a transient (laughs) impulse. I, I don't need to act on that. It's not like, and it's not even like, I feel like disappointed and I'm like, Oh man, I really wish I lived in a world where I could have punched that guy. It's like, no, that was just a, that was just a, like a bad impulse. I don't, I'm not going to do that. And th- that's kind of the same space of what I'm trying to describe. It's just, um, what, while you, while you have successfully tamped down on your violent impulses, I, I <laughs> I'm just relating the experience of somebody who has done the same thing, but for like, uh, lust impulses or, or whatever. And I don't, th- I don't think that's, I don't think it's that weird. I just think it's kind of, interesting and and, uh, one way of being different i guess i do think it is interesting it it sounds less mysteriously mysterious and crazy when you explain it that way rather than just like a switch of i can choose not to be attracted to people yeah and i was i i I think after saying maybe that poorly communicated framing in the first opening of the conversation i tried to like contextualize and explain better but i don't think i succeeded but I, i feel like i feel like i got it across in this conversation Okay. Do you, just theoretically speaking, have any sort of intuition or any sort of feeling that, um, because the reason I am not violent uh, when I feel anger is because I think that would be just a bad thing for me to do Uh, on net bad, uh, on net bad for me, bad for society, just in general, 
don't do that. That's going to make things worse. Whereas yeah. on the other hand, like flirting with people, showing interest, having fun with them, maybe stepping it up to some sort of romantic involvement. None, nothing there is bad in any way that I can see. So I'm like, wh- why, why would I suppress something that just can make everybody happy? Well, so specifically, I mean, that, that's why I harp on the idea that that you're in a in a committed relationship where, given the norms of your the norms and expectations of that relationship and that person, it would be very hurtful to them if you were to pursue, you know, the seeds of a relationship with someone else, which is what flirting, you know, is. It's it's like you're you're kind of keeping your options open, and then you're. And, and and so, like, if if this person over here has this reasonable expectation that that I have given them that I am going to be their partner and I am reliable and I am going to behave, you know, that uh, w- we are agreeing to this monogamy thing together, I will mm-hmm. expect you to be committed to me and you can expect me to be committed to you. Then it would be, um, I mean, like, literally unethical for me to be like, yeah, I said that, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to like, you know. You know, like like pursue it if if Scarlett Johansson, you know, if it's Scarlett <laughs> Johansson, I didn't, you know, it's like no, like you you actually have to mean it if you're going to make that kind of commitment. I, I mean, the, the actual answer is I don't think people take commitment nearly as seriously as they should, considering that it is actually this very weighty promise. Um, that like if you're taking the idea of monogamous commitment as seriously as you should, then you should cultivate the ability to like turn off lust at will. Because if you can't, then you're just setting yourself up for like some uncomfortable situations and possibly failing at the commitment that you've made. And, oh, and yeah. it's like that you're, you're okay. You're just you're just failing a gom jabbar as a human if you're just like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, well I said I committed, but I guess I couldn't commit because I couldn't control myself. It's like okay, well that that, that makes me think less of you than if you, it's just like you know the, the the poly position is just like no no there is no such commitment so it's not like a failure it's just like that that, that commitment doesn't exist so you know it's fine yeah like yeah. You, you can commit on all other all other axes without being like and i don't kiss or you know have sex with other people yeah yes yeah yes okay um i i i, I don't know if you were going to go somewhere else with this but i i the the, the most the most interesting uh personal thought that i had in that conversation for me was like the idea of, of the uh limerence pill i don't know if anybody else cared about that at all but i thought that was thought that was a fun thing well, to think about go ahead and fill us in on the limerence pill then just i i think i, I think i slip it into the conversation somewhere but it's like if if there was a pill you could take that would permanently make you feel limerence for the person that you're dating um would you can you redefine limerence real quick in case people don't know it? limerence is um my my personal definition is like the the feeling of intense um infatuation and puppy love and you know f- butterflies and almost sort of monomaniacal focus on on your partner that you usually have in the first like depending on the person months of a relationship apparently some people never feel limerence and apparently some people literally Oof. feel it their entire lives um i can't imagine any reason to not take that pill I can't either. I was, uh, which is why I kind of thought it was interesting because, because, because from my perspective, if, if you, if you're really feeling limerence toward one person, then you would never want to date anyone else because you would just be like, this is, this, this is, you know, this is a goddess. Why would I ever need more than this? And, and like, I thought of a very interesting thing in that conversation was somebody saying, no, I felt limerence for several people at once. And I was like, Mm-hmm. Okay, that that I don't understand. Like in in what you just said, you don't understand me having a, a brain switch that can turn off 
certain feelings. I don't understand the ability to feel limerence for more than one person. I've never even come close. Like it, it feels inconceivable to me. Not, I'm not calling this person a liar, by the way. I'm just saying it's yeah, the kind yeah. of thing where I'm like, wow. <laughs> uh, um, I could, I could totally see it, especially if those two people are like good with each other too. And like, you can just all three go together, do things. I don't know. It, it sounds, it sounds amazing. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, um, here on the verge of the singularity, I, I low key expect that there to be such a thing as like, marriage except also you both install a little firmware update on your Neuralink that means you feel a gush of um, endorphins and oxytocin every time you see your partner um, meaning you are li literally now incapable of falling out of love with them um, I expect there will be pros and cons to this but that doesn't mean people aren't going to try to do something like this yeah, yeah. real quick um uh -huh seeing as you had for a a long time a monogamous commitment and i don't know might be looking for another one is it beyond a thing you would be willing to consider is it something that feels too like bad for you to if you were to like be in a relationship where you have all the commitment stuff but you're still free to you know date around and sleep with other people and such but you still have the the all the other various life and emotional and so forth commitments so and, and my way of phrasing your question is like would i be open to the to polyamory as a as a concept is that kind of what you mean basically yeah yeah um it it's not like a hard no but it's more like that kind of like i said earlier in the conversation like the the end game of what i would want out of a relationship would be something very romantic and possibly foolish and unrealistic <laughs> which which is like committed monogamous um devotion and yeah. and so it's it's like a, it's not it's not like a, yeah i mean sure a lot of what you just described sounds good in some ways but also sort of like it's like does, does that road lead to the destination that i want to go to and i mean it's possible that it does it's just like that that's the question that interposes itself when i ask um whether i'd be open to that kind of thing okay I, I mean, I, I've known people who have those sorts of things, so I think it's possible. But I also, I strongly suspect that it's just a difference of neurological types where some people literally couldn't get that feeling of commitment if they didn't have also sexual exclusivity, which I personally don't think is important. But I, I think some people do. Like the, the one thing that sometimes annoys me is when people say like you have no commitment in your relationships or whatever. And I'm like... No, no, that that's bullshit. You can have plenty of commitment in a poly relationship. You just don't have sexual exclusivity, which is not a thing that we care about, but um, seems to be intrinsically wrapped up in, in the idea for some monogamous people. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a different way of being thing. Yeah. I mean, definitely that that's like, it's, it's very, it's, I think it's just an interesting question to ask what's intrinsic versus what's sort of learned um or like you know beaten into you by your community or 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 just an assumption you never questioned you know um yeah i don't pretend to have the answers at, at most i was trying to like uh, just express like well here's here's a, here's a way that i thought everyone was that apparently not only is everyone not this way but everyone else is confused at my expressing that i'm this way <laughs> so um that's um that's it's always good to discover these differences i think there are even a fair number of monogamous people who are like what the hell are you talking about you don't feel attraction to other women yeah th there were and i was like 
I, I, honestly, like not, not even joking. I was like, well, your life must be a lot harder than mine because it sure is convenient to be able to just not have to worry about that. Like, right. like not totally. like, like, like I don't have to worry if I'm in a committed relationship that I'm going to cheat. Like, I don't have to worry about that in myself. I just know like, oh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm good. I, yeah. I don't know if they're good, but I'm good on my end. So um, you found a hack that made things permanently easier. Yeah, it's the exactly. same way I feel about like being gay. Just oh, must be <laughs> such an easier life. God, I've, I've often felt this. <laughs> uh, All right, well, thank you for joining me, and uh, I will try to wedge this into our already too long episode. Cool, thanks. Okay, it's been ages since we've done like a decent amount of feedback. Remember when it used to be? I'm uploading some older episodes now to YouTube because some the young kids these days listen to podcasts on YouTube, which is weird. Which also makes me think maybe we should do like a video version. But eh, I don't really want to necessarily always look nice enough for a camera. Yeah, there's also the fact that editing video is a whole other beast. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. All but right, f that. You know, I, I've got I've got a background idea if we ever get around to doing it that will involve some video aspect of it. So okay, uh, we'll put that on the back burner though. But yeah, uh, yeah, some listener feedback. Yeah, but I just want to remember back in the day when we used to do like listener feedback every episode at the end of the episode for like 10 minutes. Yeah, I think was, uh, I think we had less of it back then, which was fun. You know, that reminds me because I want to say this this episode and I forgot and I, I don't want to forget at the end, even though it's more of an end of episode thought is that like where we've passed 200 episodes, you know, mostly every other week for, you know, how long does that put us out? Like math with me here. Um, I believe we started in 2015. Yeah, I mean, we're coming up on 10 years. Yeah. And Holy so, shit. Yeah, we are. Like, it, it's just kind of fun to think about. And I, I was I was thinking about thoughts on on the Bayesian conspiracy, on having done it for so long. And maybe this kind of was spurred on thinking about whatever, who gets credit for what idea, like the uh, the way the media treats Bostrom, even though it's not related to that at all. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess I was just thinking, like, the, the fun of it has waxed and waned, but it's it's always, you know, it's always a positive experience, even though, like, the energy mm-hmm. level sometimes dip. I guess I was just thinking that, like, to me, it's it's hugely rewarding that it's spawned enough stuff that, like, if uh, the University of Bayes and the Guild of the Rose, especially the Mind Killer, for example, you know, like, if those if those were the only legacies and no one ever remembered the Bayesian conspiracy, I'd be okay with that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's kind of fun. You know, it uh, like these people would have gotten together and organized somehow some other way, probably. But having maybe helped bring the Guild of the Rose into existence six months or a year earlier than it would have otherwise is awesome. Yeah. So it, it's it was just one of those kind of like reflective moments I was having uh, a few days ago, but it is a really nice thought, especially because it just it feels so weird. Just it's just you and me sitting around reading stuff and then talking about it, and I guess it doesn't feel like it's anything influential in the moment. But you add it up over ten years, there's there's something there. There there seems to be a lot, and you know it's kind of fun. You know how many uh, other people started doing podcasts like Not Everything Is a Clue. Mm-hmm. You know, it was at least three or four different podcasts. I mean, not three or four different people. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, that started because I ripped off the idea of We've Got Worm from uh, uh, Matt and Scott, right? Yeah. So it's like one of those just fun downstream effects of like, oh, yeah, this 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 sparked like so much enjoyment and fun for so many people going down so many years. It's it's just uh, it's fun to have ever been a part of something like that. It really is. But I, I think I thought of that briefly because... Uh, we used to do listener feedback at the end of every episode. I think it's because we had less feedback because that was, that was well before we had a discord. And so yeah. all the feedback could be like an email or, or a comment on the, on the post. And right. so then it was, it was sometimes one or two comments an episode, you know? Yeah. And now that we've got a lively community over at the discord, it's, uh, it's a lot to, 
keep up with. Anyway, Kuiper has is, is at the top of our nose here. Yeah, Kuiper, great dude. Uh, writes for video games. I met him at uh, Vibe Camp, and also uh, was one of the authors of one of the finalists of the ACX um, book review contest. Nice. So I don't know. I just I just wanted to give him a shout out because yeah. I think that's cool. No, that's great. And th- this this comment was from him, right? About the uh, judicial episodes we had. Yes. Kuiper points out that stocks, when you put the people up in the public place, locked up. This is, this is in response to your proposed idea of uh, why don't we just like basically corporally punish people for crimes instead yes. of locking them up for 30 years. Yes, a whipping or possibly a removal of a finger or something like that. Uh, Kuiper says stocks, in addition to being physically uncomfortable, are also humiliation ritual. And then he had a number of thoughts about that without saying any more explicit value judgments just thoughts about it one of the things is it is deterrence because being a public spectacle is very public and everyone can see that it is happening i think that's why whippings and canings tended to happen in public too yes absolutely also uh it has reputational effects which is part of the deterrent because if you spend all day you know out in public locked up with a sign saying i didn't pay my debt it's going to be harder to find people to loan you money after that (laughs) so even more reason not to Renegade on a debt. He says that one of the interesting things is that there is sometimes downstream effects of this. That uh, maybe if you're putting stocks for something minor like a public drunkenness, then you got a funny story to tell at the future. Uh, where, if, on the other hand, if it's a more severe offense, then you got to deal with being a known thief. Yeah, you know, people talk about you know spending a weekend in jail. You know, for Kyle Kinane, the comedian, had a album titled this way, and uh, or had an album titled Whiskey Icarus. And he talked about in that in that special how he got a DUI, and he says whiskey Icarus flew a little too close to the sun, um, mm. you know. So like it that that can be just kind of like a, a funny time of and, you know. So he's like, so they put me in a little room and took away my shoelaces, and I got to think about my life. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So you, you're right, and in those it can be kind of like a funny, you know. Oh yeah, I had I had a really shitty weekend in the stocks. You know, can you believe it? Versus like yeah. you know, again, I I beat somebody almost to death, and I was in the stocks, right? Yeah. I think this this next part is the most one of the most interesting parts to me about this idea. He says that another way in which the community gets to participate and decide in the victim's uh, punishment. A day in the stocks can be made more or less pleasant by the amount of jeering or rotten food thrown at you. Alternatively, the number of people willing to stop by and offer you food or water. The community can effectively veto a sentence and decide not to participate in your, your humiliation if they feel you don't deserve it or do things to ease your suffering. Viewed in a positive light, one could describe this as democratic. I really like that. I, I could imagine factions that would do that for like everybody. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, like kind of like the opposite of uh, the kind of like the Hells Angels showing up to shut up to, to counter the uh, the Westboro Baptist Church at, at military funerals. Mm-hmm. It's just you get, you know, a brigade of local volunteers who, who you know, hang out in a circle the whole weekend or whatever with the person who's who's in who's uh, stockaded in the stocks or yeah. whatever you know, setting out their iPad for them to watch and, you know, giving them food and drink and stuff. You know, there probably have to be rules about how much their people are allowed to do that or something. Cause like it has to stay a punishment. Yeah. But I, I can totally see that happening. I really like that. That is the one that made me most not sure about this. Cause on the one hand, I do think it's really important for a community to, to have some sway as to, you know, know this was a total injustice and we can make it better or, wow, this guy did not get punished enough. Got to fucking make it worse because fuck that dude for what he did. But like also the community generally doesn't go to the trial and see all the evidence laid out. And many times it might just be an extra punishment on someone who is unpopular for no good reason 
or a a extra light sentence for someone who is popular because they're attractive or some shit, right? Yeah, there's definitely a double-edged sword for having that sort of involvement. I mean, we kind of have that now, you know, it's just yeah. the people are usually all behind bars, but I'll still never, I actually, I, every time I, I think this thought or about, or, or say it, I always catch myself because I, I never want to give up, but I was about to say, I'll still never quite understand how Ted Bundy had, had women outside the prison protesting his execution. Mm. So, so, because to say, I'll never understand is just a, is a failure of imagination. And if I put enough effort into it, I should, I should be able to at least understand everybody, right? To, to yeah. at least a little, but like. That seems weird. And so if he was if he was stockaded instead of uh, in prison, you know, he'd, he'd have a harem of, of, of devotees, you know, bringing him, you know, nice food and and hanging out, you know, like mm-hmm. whereas a less attractive serial killer <laughs> wouldn't have that. Um, yeah. So it uh, that seems like a, a mixed externality there. Yeah. So I don't know. Just just a bunch of interesting things about the idea to think about. Yeah. And and this last bullet point that he had in there too was one that I thought of as well as like, you know, people could escalate the punishment to more f- serious forms of violence, you know, rocks instead of rotten food. And, but he says that doing so was usually prohibited. After all, the offender had been sentenced to public humiliation, not public whipping. And so, you know, it, it does raise the question, you know, some people take justice into their own hands now, you know, uh, a la punching Nazi, Nazis or throwing milkshakes at politicians or whatever. And uh, some of those I think are more acceptable than others, but it's... Just one of those things of like, well, maybe maybe that's why it's not done this way. It, it, it gets twisty. It doesn't mean that it's, that it's worse than what we have now. It's just it means that it would have its own set of problems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I had a second follow up here about the whole punishment episode thing. Oh, good. We'll see if I am inspired to digress the way that I was thinking about after this one. Okay. Uh, this comes from Istanbul, and I'm going to skip most of it, but it the context was in terms of the guy uh, that that you were on the jury trial for, uh, who was convicted for shooting at or around towards a dude uh, that he was beefing with that was uh, dating his ex and that had just made some sort of threatening threatening comments about his paternity rights to his child. That was my speculation. We didn't know why he did it. Oh, we, we don't know what the guy said. If I didn't make that clear, I absolutely should have. I thought it was in the texts that he said something about like don't threaten my relationship with my daughter or something. Um the fact that the 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 father felt threatened whether it was by this guy or by his girlfriend it's unclear. Um all we know all all that was known uh in the courtroom was that uh th- there was some communication between the new boyfriend and the the father/the defendant uh a couple hours before the incident. Um and then we got like the specific texts coming from the defendant saying, you know, stay up, I'm coming over, except put less eloquently, etc. Um, oh, but- so you, I had assumed that like, you knew it was because he had like threatened custody or something. It could have just been something like, I'm not going to give you the drugs you paid for or some shit. Um, it could have been there, there was there was an anecdote or there was, I, I guess, a piece of testimony about, you know, it was like the the daughter's kindergarten graduation or something. And the new boyfriend was there and then he was beefing with the new boyfriend there about that, uh, or at least at the time. But since the defendant never said anything, it was, you know, we never, we never got a deep dive into anything that we didn't have like actual text message records of. Um, oh, 
Okay. Yeah, I, I, uh, if I, if I said that that came out as like fact, I, de- I definitely regret that. I, it was, it was our speculation that it, you know, what could have coerced this guy who just the weekend prior had served his ex-wife with or his ex-girlfriend with uh, custody paperwork for his daughter. What could have possessed him to go over there and shoot at the house, you know, a week later? And we just assumed that the daughter was the berserk button that this that the new boyfriend kept kept poking, you know, huh. it, uh, in in intentionally or not. Like, why did the defendant do it was never brought up because the defendant never admitted to doing it. I mean, given that some people will shoot at others over the the results of a soccer match, like it, I I, I can see how a reasonable person would have been like. As a reasonable person, I could only be driven to this if someone threatened my daughter's my relationship with my daughter. So maybe that's what he was doing. But I know a lot of dudes out there will just be like, "How dare you bad talk my football team? I'm gonna shoot at you." Some of the the, the details are hazy now. This this was in August, and it's now January. But uh, some of the texts from the girlfriend to the defendant immediately after were talking about like, you know, now you're never gonna see your daughter and stuff. Um, mm, okay. You know, good luck with your custody after all this or something. And yeah. so. It was a reasonable inference that it had something to do with the kid, but maybe, maybe I, not. Yeah. Maybe I'll re-listen to that episode and see if I had a, a piece <laughs> of evidence I'm forgetting or something. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm just extrapolating too far out of too little information, which I do sometimes. But now we can join with it for hypothetical. Uh, yes. For the rest of uh, anyway. Istanbul's point. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so what it all came down to is that his um, prison sentence seemed like a whole lot. And we were like, wow, that seems that seems like a lot. And there, and then we were talking about uh, potential other punishments that wouldn't take, put him in prison for decades. Uh, Istanbul says, given that in particular the guy we're talking about is more reproductively successful than either host so far, hmm. and Inyash's point about poor life outcomes for children of fathers who commit crime, is taking him out of the gene pool for his reproductive years better for society than corporal punishment? <laughs> That's an interesting, uh, interesting question. Um, it's the kind of thing that I think could never land, uh, politically, um, certainly not today, uh, not, not in, not in, uh, 21st century America, Mm. but in a whatever Star Trek style future where it's Mm -hmm. like not quite utopian, but you know, we've more or less got our shit together. Mm -hmm. Um, I could totally see that being a thing, right? It's like, Hey, look, you, you convicted your second violent crime. That's it. We're sterilizing you. Yeah. You know? Um, and, and it would be, it would be impartial and fair and that sort of thing. Right. Um, it just, it happens to be right now that there's a disproportionate number of people per rate of like base rate in the population committing crimes. And there's, there's lots of, I think when I say good reason, I don't mean good reason to commit crimes. I mean, good reason that, that crime, that life of crime has come to them. And so to, to implement that now would really just mean going around sterilizing a lot of people, uh, a lot of minorities, and that that's super fucked up. So, um, yeah, that, that's huh. I I had just I don't know maybe half a year ago uh, read someone putting forth the proposal. Uh, I don't know how long ago they put this proposal out, but I just saw it half a year ago. That um, a lot of the um, reduction in crime in Europe over the the middle renaissance ages period to the present day was because they just started executing the fuck out of people they're like all right you committed a couple of violent crimes boom you're dead no more we're, we're tired of this shit and that they eventually uh, eventually managed to remove the most violent criminally prone genes from the gene pool um since you know everything is heritable including tendency to violence and that i thought that wasn't 
interesting point at the time. But now that you, now that he mentions it, like on the one hand right. that I, I do sort of want there to be less crime in society. On the other hand, I saw a counterpoint that like, you're not just removing violent crime when you remove the people with those genes. There's also other things that are being removed along with the package. And maybe that is reason that uh, a lot of people in Northern Europe seem to be less, seem to be more risk averse, less willing to be agent agency and more prone to falling into socialism and other stagnation traps. So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, not being a historian or a, a genetic biologist, I, right. I, All this is wild speculation. Right. I, I guess I'm just thinking that, like, you know, if, if we started killing drunk drivers, mm -hmm. we'd probably see a lot less drunk drivers, not because <laughs> there's a genetic propensity to drink and drive, but because people would be like, oh, okay, this is a real punishment, you know? Well, also, there's a genetic propensity to drink, just period. Some people do not like it, and some people really love it. And I would bet that drunk drivers are disproportionately the people who really love it. And over a couple centuries, you could get rid of a lot of the genes in the gene pool that really like alcohol if you did that. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, just that it is a thing that would happen. It's It seems possible. Again, I, I feel like there's so many factors that go into basically everything that I don't know if it's as easy right. as all that. But yeah, um, yeah. but but in theory, for sure. You know, put it another way, could we specifically breed a population intentionally that, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. hates alcohol? Totally, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we could do that probably with just a, a couple centuries worth of effort if the whole planet wanted to orient towards that goal, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, I think uh, the idea of getting these people out of out of society for the reproductive years, I mean, I guess that's, that's one maybe benefit. The thing is, I don't I don't know how much of the the crime, this actually does segue kind of nicely into the, the tangent I wanted to go into last time we talked about this, but we already talked long enough, was like, I, I don't know how to get started on this. I mean, the thing is, it's like... Mm, the the deck was so much stacked against this guy, whether him in particular or insert a general, a, a, another generic uh, black defendant in twenty first century America, right? Like, I mean, the overt stuff, you know, that get, that that gets, that gets trumpeted sometimes too much uh, to the point of dis being disingenuous. But there's there's also just like the subtle stuff that is, I think, inarguable. You know, like uh, this is just, and I I don't have any papers to cite or whatever to back up. So maybe maybe I'm totally wrong here, but I'm pretty sure I'm right that young black kids are seen as more adult than their peers. Therefore, they're more responsible, even though they're both 14, you know? This like, guy was like 30 though, right? No, I know. I'm just talking, but but as a 14-year-old, he was treated this way, you know? Oh, and he, yeah, they're, they're perceived as, as scarier because they're more, because again, they seem more mature uh, or they're perceived as more mature. Yeah, it's just like a lifetime of just, you know, bullshit weighing down. And again, it doesn't excuse anything. It just makes it like, less clear to me that this is a genetic problem uh, that could be, that could be bred out and more like a, you know, society thing that we need to keep working through. Um, right. Right. You know, like my wife has a coworker who has a, has a son and he's, I think he's 16 when he was 15, he was in the car near, near his high school with some classmates who were vaping mm -hmm. and uh, they all get admonished except for him who gets like hauled in by the school resource officer and uh, charged with illegal drug use or illegal substance use on school property and had to go to court twice. No. And he was the only one in the group. And he also wasn't vaping at the time. He was in the car with kids who were. Jesus. Um, yeah. But, you know, and like, yeah, this is one anecdote. But I think that the summation of a lot of people's lives is just lots of these anecdotes. Mm -hmm. And so 
it's it's not saying, well, you know, therefore, if this kid turns to, you know, shooting up his ex-girlfriend's house or whatever, you know, that, that makes sense. It doesn't make sense in a way that, like, again, excuses anything. It's just like him doing it, the, the defendant in the case that I was on, wasn't as insane as you doing it or me doing it, right? Like, it was as wrong. But it wasn't like, you know, we're judging it from like where we were. We're like, you know, how how dumb would we have to be to think that that was a good idea? And it's just mm-hmm. like, I don't know, a th- this guy had three decades, almost three decades, I guess, of being treated in such a way that I think, am I am I getting across any point? I'm not, if, if, I, if I have I, a point, I think I'm dancing around it. Not because, yeah, I, no, not because I, I am refusing to touch it, just because I can't quite find exactly what I'm trying to say. I think I understand what you're saying. Um, I also think I disagree, though. Mainly because, if I recall correctly, you probably also grew up fairly poor, right? Um, lower middle class. Like we never wanted, for, you know, we never really wanted for stuff. But my, you know, parents drove old shitty cars. My dad's car kept the windows up with a doorstop. But okay. you know, in when I was in junior high, my mom started working and uh, had a very generous boss. And then you know, things were turning around for them too. But so I wouldn't say poor, no. But uh, yeah, lower end of middle. I, I see a lot of things. Along the lines of, well, of course, poor areas have more crime. Like when when you're poor, you just do more crime because of how much being poor affects you on a, I don't know, mental level or psychological level or some shit. And like when I was younger, I accepted that. I was like, yeah, oh, of course, your life is terrible. You can't help but but act this way because you're so stressed out and, and all this shit. But then like I got old and I was like, that just seems racist against poor people. Just because you're poor doesn't mean that you lose the ability to know right from wrong and know like what is okay to do and what is just evil. Like when I was a toddler, my parents, I mean, they, they literally came over, uh, they, they left Poland with a few suitcases of clothes and as much cash as they could get for selling things on the gray market in Poland before they left. Like I, I was eating school lunches, be, uh, breakfast and lunch the, the free ones because we we qualified for the subsidy like we we definitely got a lot of help from the government and from our church but we were legit poor for quite a while and my parents crawled out of that and they never broke the law as far as i know um other than zoning laws rebuilding you know uh improving houses and stuff <laughs> right aside from maybe zoning laws yeah they, they never broke a law worth uh worth having you're right and, and like not only that but they they raised us and taught us in a way where like I would have considered those kinds of things basically unthinkable. The only time I started thinking, yeah, we should like riot and burn down all of society and everything was when I went to high school and I was surrounded by other like revolutionary socialist sort of teenage punk boys and they weren't poor <laughs> is the thing. They they were angry punks and I'm fine with that. I was an angry young teenage male too, uh, but. I don't think just saying someone had a hard life and was poor is like, so obviously it's understandable when they shoot at people like, no, no, that is, that is so, so dismissive of the fact that poor people also have agency and can know what is good and bad. Yeah. And aren't just at the mercy of their environment. No, for sure. I, I think that some people are, I mean, we're all at the mercy of our environment, but I think some people's environments are less merciful mm-hmm. and, you know, everyone has has the agency to do whatever they can, but they only have so much elbow room within the constraints of whatever their life is. You know, like when you and I were kids, you know, we probably got uh, a, a talking to from my parents explaining that, you know, if if ever you're you're not feeling safe or there's something something's 
dangerous is happening and we're not around, you can call the police and they'll come help. Um, mm. There, there are a good number of, of kids growing up in the, in the in the country now and then who are like, no matter what happens, never call the police. Right. You know, not not because and, you know those parents are wrong, but because those parents are right. Because for I them, disagree. their circumstance is way different. Now, I think those parents are wrong, and they're teaching a bad thing. I I would. Uh, I guess I'm curious why you disagree. Because cops, when they come to help kids, are actually going to help the kids. They're they're not going to endanger the children. I mean, I, I can see like if there's something illegal happening in the house that the parents might tell the kids, don't call the cops. Or more likely, if cops are seen coming to a house in this sort of neighborhood, then the neighbor's going to be like, oh, shit, there's snitches in that house. We got to like retaliate somehow. Um, but I don't think that there's danger from the actual cops if a child is feeling threatened to, to call them. I think it depends. And certainly, but I mean, maybe if it's not even the cops, maybe it is the narc thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. But then it's just a matter of like, you know, as a kid, you don't get to choose where you grow up. You know, that's so like if, true. If you grow up in that kind of environment, then it's like it's 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 shaping, and it does depend. Again, like the to be clear, I'm not I'm not parroting the the popular but incorrect line that you know unarmed black people are shot at a rate that uh, is drastically disproportionate to the number of crimes that are being committed. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's but there there is a uh, maybe this has to do with the the perceived. Uh, adultness of of younger minorities but it's like you know a 14 year old you know some of them look really young some of them don't of of any kids right uh Mm -hmm. i was watching uh last night uh there's the great british baking show which i really like and there's some kids version and these nine-year-olds can just bake circles around anyone i know it's amazing Um, Cool. but even among them there are ones that look like they're you know and i'm bad at guessing how old kids are but some that look eight and some that look 15 oh yeah and i'm I'm not sure how old they are, but there I don't think that they have people that are half the age of others competing. So Yeah. I've legit seen people who I would have assumed were like early adults and found out later they were early teens. I was like, holy shit, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. And so, you know, I think just being treated that way by not just the police, not just your peers, but also, you know, your teachers, your uh everybody you know it you know so like then you know when, I, when i'm goofing around being a stupid kid i'm just being a stupid kid but they're being you know a stupid young man who should have known better right i don't know i don't know if it, it really has i don't know how big the impact that you're talking about is i guess yeah and i i, I guess you know maybe i should it, it's it's weird i was gonna say like maybe i should just you know talk to more people who actually grew up in that circumstance but then it feels like tokenizing you know uh like i'm well, not tokenizing it, it it there's something weirdly uncomfortable about it. like hey you know you you might have had a young a, a rough life growing up could you tell me about it to see if my my thoughts here are right there's got to be a more eloquent way to start that conversation maybe i'm just google uh, i'm sure people wrote books or blog posts I, or something but i mean i i think as long as you're friends with someone you can totally do that yeah yeah that's fair and but actually that when i mentioned people writing blog posts i remember one from back in the the this would have been 2010 give or take two years i remember reading an, an article it might have been called like shuffling my feet or something um, yeah that's a really good one. Oh, so it wasn't just some edge thing i found it was popular or at least we both found mm-hmm. it um mm-hmm. if i recall correctly it was a larger black dude who wrote this thing and he talked mm-hmm. about to not make people nervous he walked louder than he needs to so, so he never surprised people when he came up on them yeah and like you know the idea that like someone could would be scared seeing you coming isn't something that many of us have to have to live with right so i mean I don't know about you, but I do the same thing because I am a male and I'm, you know, larger. I'm over six foot. When, when I see single women walking, I am very aware that 
they might feel threatened by that. So I, I do try to do a similar kind of thing. Yeah, but I mean, I think if I think the difference is, you know, I guess maybe twofold. Oh, yeah, he's probably seen as a bigger threat because of his skin color. Yeah, right. And he has to do it around everybody. Mm, okay. And and I wonder, you know, it could be to to an Does extent. Do it? Oh, no, I, I, again, it's been I read it yeah, yeah, around when time. you did sometime in the. Mm. 2000 knots, but just the idea that like, oh yeah, I always, I always have to live my life in such a way that like, I make sure I, I'm expressing to everybody all the time that I'm not a threat. That that just seems like a whole level of bullshit that again, you and I are lucky to not have to deal with. Um, again, I, I'm going to say I have done this for many, many years, not around everybody, but around um, women. I mean, I, I sometimes do to an extent. I'm also, you know, I'm 5'8", so I'm, I'm, I'm less threatening. You know, I'm more of the kind of like, whatever, try not to draw attention kind of person. Um, but you know, my, my general vibe of, you know, if I was taking the train at night or something coming home from work or whatever, I would like just be looking at my phone the whole time. Yeah. And like, that was my version of quote unquote walking loudly would just be like, I'm clearly not even paying attention to you. Right. Um, yeah. One of the things I really liked about that article is that he pointed out that if you're on the phone and talking, then people feel much more comfortable because you're distracted. You're obviously like with someone who can hear what's going on on the other side of that. And so sometimes he would just pull out his phone and act like he's talking into it. I was like, holy shit, that's great advice. I wonder too, just as a possibility that like you're overestimating the amount of fear that you put into people just because you've been around a handful of girls or of women who proclaim that they think all men are scary, uh, whether mm-hmm. they believe it or not. It's, I guess what I'm saying is it's, it's possible that his behavior is more warranted than yours, given, given the amount of shit that people ascribe to uh, the two of you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't think I made a really eloquent point here, other than just saying like I was thinking about because you, you know, you'd asked when we talked about that, you know, why I felt extra bad because the defendant was black, and like that's part of the reason. Yeah, is yeah. like you know, it just because you know we didn't go through his childhood, you know, that wasn't relevant to the case. But I'm willing to just bet from from probabilities that like it was it was not the childhood that I had. I want to clear up real quick, just in case there was any confusion. I absolutely 100% agree that it sucks to be viewed as a predator by the wider society. And as a black man, he would get that more than I get it. So it sucks even more for him. And I I completely agree with that. And that has been my experience too. Like I got no objection there. Uh, My main thing that I'm saying is that like, there's a lot of things about reality that suck. And we do the best we can to deal with them. And I don't know, you just, you do what you can. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I 100% agree. So this is just kind of where I think about just like the amount of, of freedom that some people have, you know, like Uday Hussein would, uh, uh, apparently I heard drive around to, you know, weddings that were happening and then, you know, have his, his, his dogs eat the, eat the groom and then rape the wife or something. Right. Um, Jesus. But this guy was Saddam Hussein's son. Yeah. So like what, what fucking chance did he have to be a good person? <laughs> right. I, <laughs> Less I than know. you and me. Um, it it there there's yeah. there's an amount of blank slateism and then there's just amount of like it, I mean, this, I, I this just, was your environment growing up like I think some people can overcome that but they have to overcome it as opposed to just like accept it right no I understand what you're saying but also it sounds almost like you're saying and therefore I should feel kind of bad for him or give him some slack or something it do, I'm only saying the first one that I should feel kind of bad for him that I feel bad for him not that you not that, you not that anyone should okay. I feel terrible for Uday Hussein like you know it. I also feel I feel worse for the people that he victimized. Right. But there, that guy level... that guy's life sucked, you know? I okay. I mean, it... there's there's a certain level of of empathy that I just cannot have. 
And sure, maybe his life sucked for whatever reasons, but I, I've come to the point where, like Dumbledore, I just cannot care. I, well, when you put it that way, now I'm forced to, to think about it harder. <laughs> um, no, 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 that's good. Because uh, I think Dumbledore was at the point with a particular evil person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a person who was at the moment threatening him. Not like looking back, you know, historically. You know, I think that if, if Voldemort was dead, you know, Dumbledore could sit there and be like, man, if only, you know, he didn't have all these things that happened to him, he could have been a good person, right? Um, mm. I think that's that's totally a thought Dumbledore would have had if he had had time to reflect when the crisis was over. Um, but yeah, in the event of an emergency, I would like to think that I'm prepared to, you know, I'm not a violent person, but I'd be prepared to 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 dish out whatever violence necessary, uh, irrespective of my my philosophical waxings on, you know, this this person's lack of freedom in their in their actions, right? Uh, well, in that particular scene, <laughs> I don't think Dumbledore felt threatened at all because he thought that, like, uh, he's in my trap. I got him. He is powerless now, and he's about to be extinguished from reality. So now I'm just talking with him. That's a good point. Maybe he was yeah. just sick of Voldemort's shit. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's an interesting point. I, again, just to gigantically qualify this, that I'm or gigantically asterisk this, that I'm, I'm not really qualified to talk about much of this. Like I'm not, I'm not a huge believer of like the, well, you need to live the experience to be able to, to talk about it. Um, right. But you do need to live the experience to be able to talk about it uh, intelligently, hmm. you know, or at least um, again, everything, everything I'm hearing, everything I'm saying is stuff I've heard from people. I'm not, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not talking about my own life because that wasn't my life, you know? So there, there's a level of like, I, I, cause I hate the idea of saying, well, no, you have to, you have to live it to understand it. Cause like, if that's the case, then we're all hope then everything is hopeless. You know, mm-hmm. we can't all mm-hmm. live each other's lives, but we should all be able to understand and work with each other. But there, there, really there's, good point. but there's a level two to it that is valid, even if it's not as valid, even if, even if it doesn't run all the way to, well, we'll never understand each other. Right. Yeah. Like, I think I can pretty well put myself in the, put myself in the heads of the guys, you know, who ravaged that music festival in October, you know? It, it huh. doesn't. It doesn't take that many steps for me to get there. Just imagine being raised in a religious death cult where uh, you believed. Not only did you believe God existed, but you believed that this was like the highest reward, the highest action one could do, is to to strike down infidels. Like if if you really grow up in that kind of mindset, like you, yeah, but not just strike down the infidels, but to to rape and to torture infidels and to have fun while doing it. They're they're, they're subhuman monsters to make the world a worse place for being there. You know. Like I still would not now. Enjoy now, before someone sound bites that, I'm saying that I believe that's what's going on in the <laughs> yes. minds of the people who committed those crimes. Those those yes, atrocities. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I I think that you know if you're raised hard, if, if you know with enough pressure on you from from childhood, it's a matter of overcoming that. It's not a matter of just like being the, the baseline good person. You know, right, right. It's it's like the orcs. They they are subhuman. They they you know you'd have to exterminate the orcs so that the rest of us can live at all in any sort of decency but like the do you have to have fun with it you're right the joyful slaughtering and raping and like i i think the like the, i the, cannot the, put myself in that place the disanalogy there though is that i think that you know the difference between killing a band of orcs because you know they're danger to the world and they're 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 subhuman versus killing the band of orcs that killed your village you know and it's like i kind of get why someone might feel great rampaging that band of orcs right like okay so like to make this like literally subhuman if there's a um a band of wolves say that tore through your village and tore apart your sister or your lover or whoever and you go out afterwards and you track down these wolves and you exterminate them so they can't harm a village anymore 
do you like also have fun tormenting them and ripping them apart and raping them and like the revenge against what the whale no i think i took out of my life <laughs> right i i understand needing that, to exterminate them that, that's but a the, reference to inyasha's one line rat fic of the old man or wait uh moby, uh, dick. moby dick um yeah. no i think that there's a level once you get so far below human that the idea of enjoyment is pointless but if you believe that the whatever the people that you're attacking authored their decisions in any meaningful way and they're just bad people um, and they deserve this kind of thing yeah then, then, you know, you're like, if you feel like you're meeting out justice, you're not meeting out justice if you kill the wolf that killed your family, you know, you like not, not, not in a real way. No, I'm, I'm going to go right now and say I, I'm not going to even try to empathize with something like that because that gets me one step closer to becoming that sort of person and wanting to take revenge on the people who did that kind of thing in that same sort of way. And I don't want to get myself closer to that. That's interesting because I, I don't feel the least bit inclined towards that sort of conduct Mm. right despite me thinking that i might have something like a halfway decent model of what's going on in their heads all it does for me is make me not feel awesome when we drop revenge bombs on them right okay like after 9 11 you know the the resultant discourse was a lot of like nuke them into the stone age you know the lot of them right yeah and uh that that didn't really seem even at the time you know like a, a helpful perspective but it was like it, it was understandable as as the culture, you know, having just been hit by this group, right? By vaguely this group gestured, you know, in the rough direction of the other side of the planet, right? Yeah. And so just because I understand the impulse doesn't mean that I the least bit un- will, will condone or, or uh, uh, sympathize with it. Um, I think maybe the thing is that I have expectations of humans. And so if I really get myself to empathize with a point and see them as fellow humans, I now expect certain behaviors from them. And if they do the exact opposite of that, I am so enraged and disgusted that I would want revenge in a much more personal way than if like, I thought of them as less personed, more like objects. Like these are foreign peoples. They have their foreign ways. Yes, we must, you know, destroy their society or whatever for our own protection. But I'm not going to take emotional solace in any of that. Whereas if I think of them as people, I'm like, as people, you should know better. You know, I, I, I just, I feel, I feel like it is unfortunate that I have to wipe out the wolf colony. I feel enraged that a human did this to me. I think I understand. And it's interesting because like, sort of like as a, not defense mechanism, as a, as a preservation mechanism, both offensive and defensive, you're, you're kind of having to subhumanize them. Yeah. And it's like, no, their, their conduct has demonstrated that they're not worthy of the, you know, we, they're, that they're closer to the wolf category and, and not the human category. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, I understand where you're coming from there. It's interesting. There was one piece of feedback as long as we're, I want to, mm. I want to pivot. Um, yes. Let's do that. Although I wonder, it's, it's a little long. This is Gorky's thing? Yeah. Yeah. This, this was a comment on the Patreon post bonus episode content. Now this is bonus. So I don't know how much of this I want to put out on the public feed. I see. You know what? We've been going for almost two hours. Yeah. Do you want to come back and do this one at a later day and we can put it out as a bonus episode? Yeah, totally. Oh, that would be interesting. Totally. Cool. Okay, I'll do that. All Uh, right. All right. Then in the meantime, do we want to do the less wrong posts? Sure. Yeah, let's do that. Let's just totally whiplash and talk about the less wrong posts. (laughs) All right. Yeah. I, I guess at the end of the day, I try to have, you know, whatever, compassion for everybody. And realize that if someone's an evil person, 
it's fault aside it's it's a sad thing that they're an evil person it's sad for them it's sad for the world and it's sad that now we've got to kill you you know yeah um i feel like this this rambled a lot but that was the point of the episode so i hope i didn't come off too inarticulate or say anything you know uh that put my foot too firmly in my mouth but uh no no it's cool all right well uh we have the second law of thermodynamics and engines of cognition yes all right when did you read these uh last week I, I read uh, this yesterday and I was like, all right, I, I can, it says at the top, like 11 minute read. I'm like, I can read this. I can take some notes. Obviously it's going to take me a little longer because it always does when you're trying to analyze and take notes, but uh, I'll be in bed by midnight. <laughs> Listeners, I was not in bed by midnight. Um, I spent way, a lot of time trying to, trying to grok the second law of thermodynamics and engines of cognition. I think I'm just too dumb for this post because I can follow each of the individual arguments that he makes in it. I, I each paragraph taken on its own makes sense. I can digest it. I got it. But like, I cannot draw all the different parts of it together to form a coherent, a coherent story, a coherent line of thinking, just like a coherent whole. It doesn't work for me. And, and that worries me that there's some sort of, it's like the, when you put a whole bunch of drops of water together and all of a sudden you're shocked that there's fluid dynamics or hmm. when you put a whole bunch of neuronals together, all of a sudden you're shocked that there's consciousness. Like this, I, I was not able to, to integrate all of the parts of this. And so much like the proof that shows one equals zero, because you cannot see all the parts of it and see where the error is. I I'm worried there might be a divide by zero error somewhere in this post that I cannot see because I cannot grok it all. You know, speaking of not being able to see something, I need to just clarify something. Mm. The last episode that we released was 202, the Center for AI Policy, right? Yeah. In that episode, it says the next sequence posts are searching for Bayes structure and conditional independence and naive Bayes. What the fuck? Did I read the long ones? Uh, one of us did. Either you posted the wrong ones or uh, read the wrong ones. Because I read the other ones. I didn't read this one. Uh, that is shit. I'm sorry. Oh, I mean, I don't, it's not a big deal. Uh, perpetual motion beliefs. I tell you what, why don't you explain this one to me? I remember perpetual motion beliefs, I think. Um, so I read the wrong two episodes or wrong two posts because the wrong two ones are posted in the, uh, episode description and neither of us remember what we said we were going to read. So good luck to everybody. But this week (laughs) we are talking about the second law of thermodynamics engines and cognition or engines of cognition. And uh, perpetual motion beliefs is the second one. And I remember the second post. I don't remember the first from when I read it before. And Enosh is going to try to explain it to me. And I'm going to uh, do my best to learn as quickly as possible. Okay. All right. All righty. So let's see. Let's see how I I can do this. The first thing I drew out of it at the top is that uh, the first law is the conservation of energy. Energy is conserved in each individual interaction of particles. And thus, by mathematical deduction, no matter how large an assemblage of particles may be, the same applies. So unless you can explain how one wheel violates the laws of physics, an assembly of wheels can't do it either. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah, so far so good. Okay. Um, Just real quick to blow back on, to blow my own horn, not to blow my own horn, to be sort of an ass about the um, consciousness thing. um, If one neuron can't like tap into a magical consciousness thingy and a whole assemblage of them couldn't either, right? I was going to say yes, except for um, maybe not. To be clear, I'm not positing that there is some magic, you know, other thing that you know, is above and beyond physics that comes out of enough neurons. 
Um, I'm just saying that there's something to that bundle of neurons and what's happening inside of it that is different than whatever, what's happening inside of uh, my phone. Um, oh, definitely different from what's happening inside of your phone. But what's happening inside a bundle of neurons can be reduced to what is happening to each individual neuron and the effect it has on the individual neuron it is connected to, right? Yes and no. I'm not a big fan of the word emergence, but there's something about, you know, like a single atom or single molecule of water mm-hmm. not telling you everything there is to know about steam, ice, and, you know, sublimation. Okay. Yeah. Um, maybe if I knew all the other laws of physics, I could deduce that from a single mo- water molecule. But right. since since I don't, and neither, you know, either, and analogously, neither do I know that about the brain. Um, yeah. I think that there's the word emergence, emergent properties there is uh, one should be mindful of, but is sort of appropriate. All right. That makes a lot of sense, actually. All right. Let's keep rocking. All right. Keep rocking. Uh, next thing he says is that the first law cannot prohibit conversion, converting heat into work. You can, in fact, build a sealed box that converts ice cubes and stored electricity into warm water. He says it isn't even very hard, which is true. Uh, so it couldn't violate conservation of energy as such if you did it the other way around. A box that turns warm water into ice cubes plus stored electricity. He says that is prohibited by the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> second law is essentially Bayesian in nature. In the development over time of any closed system, phase space volume is conserved. Do those words mean things to you, Stephen? I would have to squint and make up a definition, but I'll let you go ahead and tell me. It draws an intuitive line right back to the first law where um, the energy combined energy of a system is conserved the total energy level is conserved here it's the total volume being conserved and like it just feels natural it feels mirrory there's a symmetry to it that tickles the this is what the universe is right and should be and it is good part of my brain which i tend to trust a bit yeah no i can dig it all right so okay explaining phase space let's say you're holding a ball high above the ground we describe the state of affairs as a point in multidimensional space, at least one of whose dimensions is height of the ball over above the ground. I believe we talked about this in earlier posts. So phase space in physics speak means that there are dimensions for the momentum of the particles, not just their position. A particle would have three dimensions for its position and three dimensions for its momentum. Um, the three being the X, Y, and Z axis position and X, Y, and Z axis um, momentum. The, as, as an example, going back to the tennis ball thing, um, the phase space volume would be the height is, you know, 10 and the energy is zero. So it has a certain volume as the distance to the ground decreases, the velocity relative to the ground increases. And so while one is going down, the other one is going up. So the total volume uh, is conserved in this multidimensional graph that we're thinking of. Does that make sense? It's, it's starting to to fuzz a bit. It seems needlessly convoluted way to describe what's happening there. I would talk about it in, in terms of, uh, I think this could still be talked about in, in terms of conserved energy. Um, you know, like the ball at, at time zero has, as a lot of potential energy, but no actual energy, right. Cause it's not moving. Mm-hmm. And at time one, it's moving. So it has less potential energy cause it's, it's already on its way, but it has that the energy is, is in its, in its motion. Mm-hmm. But calling this phase space volume is still not quite, it's not quite clicking for me there yet. Okay. But I don't know if it needs to, because I don't actually know if that's the point of this post. Um, I don't know either. 
I do know that the phase space concept is pretty darn important, both in this particular example and in other things that are talked about. Um, the idea, I think it was in uh, cluster space that we were thinking of, where each uh, each attribute could be seen as one dimension, like the yellowness of a bird. And uh, something that is really high in yellowness might be sticking way out of the main cluster if the birds typically are more like greenish than yellowish. Uh, and you can think of it like as a volume where the things most more the, by the typical are closer to the center of the object. Does that, do you remember that kind of thing? Yeah, totally. Okay. And, that, and that, part, that, that stuff lands for me, but what is that, that, that relates to things in concept space. What is, so I guess you're still trying to convey to me what phase space is. Mm-hmm. Okay. And phase space would be like, yeah, you're thinking about um, not the concept like yellowness, but a concept like um, height above the ground or velocity relative to the ground as part of the, the phase space. And I mean, oh. those are my, Okay, yeah, that's clicking. Great. Yeah. And so then as those change, they always change in a way that conserves the volume, the total volume. There, there's a couple things in here where he shows what would violate uh, this conservation of momentum, which I didn't pull out because it has to do with states changing and having various graphs that don't work well over an audio medium. I guess I'm going to have to go past that because I do not know how to explain it to you. Yeah, I'm going to leave it at there because um, the phase space is pretty important, but I'm not sure why exactly. And this is part of the confusion I talk about later. Uh, so we, I'm going to skip ahead now to um, temperature, um, how that has to deal with uncertainty. Uh, if the only thing you know about a glass of water is its temperature, then you are more uncertain about a hot glass of water than a cold glass of water. Real quick, do you have a guess as to why? Hot water has more stuff going on in it than cold water? Yeah, exactly. Not all the molecules in hot water are traveling at the same speed. In fact, in any glass of water, not all the molecules are traveling at the same speed. Uh, that is the reason we get evaporation, which is really cool. Right. If they're all traveling at the same speed, they'd either all evaporate or they, you know, or none of them would. Um, yes. The With, like, temperature, what you're getting there is an average. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Since um, the the hotter the water is, the faster the water molecules could be going. So there's a greater spread that any individual molecule could be in. And hence, you have more uncertainty about the velocity of any individual molecule, and thus more uncertainty about the total sum of all molecules overall. Yeah, that's perfect. And th this is, I think this is intuitive if you just imagine a glass of water at zero Kelvin. Yeah. Right? You know what all the molecules are doing? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if, if it's... Uh, 300 Kelvin, you're like, okay, well, there's stuff going on in here with some of these, but do I know, what does it tell me about the molecule next to it? Not much. And he also makes the assertion that if you know the states of all the molecules in a glass of hot water, you can extract useful work by using your knowledge to take electricity out of it and leave behind an ice cube. The, the fact that we don't know every single thing about every molecule of water in there is fundamental and important because once we know those things, we can use that knowledge to do work with it. Okay, fair enough. I mean, uh, it. I, I think I'm following you. Okay. I'm curious where this is going. That's the problem. <laughs> There's a lot of physics that we went in over uh, just, just now, and each individual thing I think I can wrap my head around, and I kind of see how some of them are related to others, especially when I read the post and they're kind of laid out with more, um, more segues than I put in. But, like, I, I don't see how they're related to what is going to be coming after this break right here. Like, this is literally where I put the break in my notes. Like, all the physics above makes sense, I guess. Um, all the epistemics below, believe them, sound good. Don't see how anything relates to each other. And I think they were supposed to relate to each other somehow. And that makes me worry. Well, 
it, it could be, you know, not every post is uh, as clear as others. Um, you know, he, he talks about Maxwell's demon, which I've heard of, which is like mm-hmm. the the idea of basically getting energy out of a system where you just put, you know, hot gas into two volumes and then only let fast moving molecules go from, you know, one to the other and then only slow ones from the, from the other one to the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, how do you decide which one's going fast? And so that 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 agent is called Maxwell's demon. I'm sure there's a Wikipedia page for it. So so then Yudkowsky says, the reason that you can't build an efficient refrigerator this way is that Maxwell's demon generates entropy in the process of inspecting the gas molecules and deciding which ones to let through. But suppose you already knew where all the gas molecules were. Then you could run a Maxwell's demon and extract useful work. So like, okay, sure. It, if you knew the perfect state, you know, I, I, I'll take your word for it, but what does that have to do with anything? Um, no. So then he goes on to talk about bits and entropy and knowledge not being subjective. Uh, well, that that statement that Maxwell's demon is doing important thermodynamic work when it evaluates which gases, um, which molecules are faster than others, I think is an important part to all this. It's kind of like the language between the, the link between the top and the bottom, but I'm not sure exactly. Because like the, the next thing I pulled out that was particularly interesting to me was that knowledge has to be represented in a brain. It is not like some mystical spirit thing that's floating somewhere out there. Knowledge doesn't exist aside from being inside a brain, and that makes it as physical as anything else. <laughs> For M to physically represent an accurate picture of Y, M's physical state must correlate with Y. Yeah, especially if it has to be an accurate picture. Um, yeah. And correlate with, not be one-to-one with necessarily, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, and I, I think I... I see where he's going then maybe with the Maxwell's demon thing. Cause like then I guess the Maxwell's demon here is what Bayesian uh, inference creating knowledge from he, the environment. He doesn't go that far, at least not yet. The, the main thing that I pulled out in relation to that is that he says one subsystem cannot increase in mutual information with another subsystem without a interacting with it and B doing thermodynamic work. Which is to say, to form accurate beliefs about something, you really do have to observe it. Interesting. You, I guess the you isn't isn't italicized there, but really do is because uh, I don't have to have an accurate belief about something, right? Um, mm, I, I I haven't observed how far away the sun is, but I'll take the uh, the astronomer's word for it, right? That's a good point. So, like, I have an accurate true belief, but it's not like my personal knowledge, like in the way that I know what color my water bottle is, but you don't. Well, if nothing else, you observed what the astronomer um, said, either through reading text or through hearing them say it, right? You're right. So, in in a strict way, I don't know how far away the sun is. I know how far away Neil deGrasse Tyson says it is. Right, and yeah. you had to observe Neil deGrasse Tyson or somebody to have a belief that belief. Right. Really, all you have to do, I guess, is put on your Mad-Eye Moody thinking cap, <laughs> and then th- this becomes more intuitive here. Okay. And importantly, any such observation requires thermodynamic work because there is a, it requires thermodynamic work for your neurons to do anything at all, to change from one state to another, to alter themselves. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, but I'm not doing any of the, th- I'm not doing any of the thermodynamic work. Well, your body is in, in the process of forming a belief. It is, it must expend energy and create heat in order to change your brain in some way. Sure, yeah. Like, okay. the, the same way that, like, you know, my, my liver, whatever, uh, does something to my blood, but I'm not doing anything to my blood, right? Right, yeah. yeah. It's I just, think that's it's happening point. to me. Yeah, or in yeah. Me. 
I, I think that's what links it back to Maxwell's demon, that Maxwell's demon would use energy of some kind because that's if you're not doing magic, then that's, Right. You uh, need to be using energy. Required. Yeah. Okay. Yes, exactly. I'm with you. Okay. Um, so forming accurate beliefs requires a corresponding amount of evidence is a very cogent truth, both in human relations and in thermodynamics. This is a great line here. If blind faith actually worked as a method of investigation, you could turn warm water into electricity and ice cubes. Just build a Maxwell's demon that has blind faith in molecule velocities. This does tell me that I have read this post, but it would have been, you know, in the early 2010s because that line rings a bell, but... It says something that I don't remember any of the rest of this. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that ties back to the uh, earlier thing that said, you know, if you if you do know where all the molecules are, then you can take electricity out and leave behind an ice cube. So if blind faith gives you any real knowledge, then you could use blind faith to do that. Okay, so what he's saying, the, the whole point of this post seems to be that forming true beliefs takes actual work. Yes, in the thermodynamic sense. Well, and, and it's kind of, Uselessly, uselessly reductive to say it takes thermodynamic work, in my opinion. Like it, it I, I think, I think what he's saying is that like you have to actually do work to to get knowledge. It's it's not enough to just say, well, no, I just know. Because if you could just know, then you could, you know, you would be magic, like because you'd be violating laws of physics. But I think this actually is an important thing to say because a lot of people do think of knowledge and ideas as non-physical things just intuitively i feel that way too so it's good to be reminded that they're not and specifically that's why a concept like maxwell's demon feels attractive because you're like why couldn't something just have this knowledge and find these things out and it's like because it always takes actual thermodynamic work and therefore it would not be a perpetual motion machine that turns warm water into ice and electricity um, it would be creating waste heat in the process of finding out this information, unless you believe in magic. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's that's probably technically true. I guess I'm just thinking about it at a, to me, more useful level of abstraction, mm -hmm. which is like, you know, again, my lungs have to be delivering, you know, through whatever mechanisms involved oxygen to my red blood cells that like, gives it to the yeah. rest of my body, gives it to my brain, but like. All that that really means is that I can't hold my breath forever. And that's the part that right. I care about, right? Yeah. Um, so for me, it's like what I'm taking from this is maybe not everything he wants me to take, but I'm hoping that it's at least part of it, which is like, you know, there, there needs to be real work involved in getting knowledge. And if you could get it from nowhere, you'd be magic. And not, yeah. So it's not just an argument against like faith. And it might be also that the harder something is to know, the more work it takes. I mean, that's not necessarily actually. True, I think, in the thermodynamic sense of the brain, though. No, because anyone could say something and you could update on it with very little work, even if it took them tons of work to find out the really hard thing in the first place. Yeah, but maybe to find the hard thing in the first place is the hard work that took lots of, like, literal energy. Um, yeah, maybe. The thing that really worries me about this is that I right now feel like I am getting up my own ass about this. That I, I'm speaking almost some sort of mystic woo, that it it feels truthy and it has a lot of sciencey words in it, but I don't fully understand them. And all that very much worries me and makes me worry about hidden divide by zero zero errors. And I'm I don't want to fall into the trap of I don't know, becoming another mystical woo-ish hippie person, believing that quantum whatever means that crystals work. Yeah, that's kind of why I'm tossing out all the stuff I don't understand and just running with the easier version. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, it's, you know, running with the divide by zero uh, trap there. It's like, I'm, I'm just, I'm literally just making the math easier and looking at easier problems so that I can make sure I'm not doing that. 
Um, so like yeah. what I can confidently say is the stuff I've said, I, I, I can't confidently restate his actual argument here because I don't understand it. Um, well, I think that if if we're doing some sort of analysis, critical analysis, attempting to understand the sequences, it may be kind of important to point that out that this one, it seems to just not work, at least for me. And I, I go ahead. I, I was just going to agree, you know, like there, there are some sequence posts that I think are more welcoming than others and again wanting wanting the community to be welcoming i want this this stuff to be accessible Mm -hmm. um this is one like if i was trying to get my friend hey check out how cool rationality is i would not send them this one yeah right even if i maybe if they were a physicist who you know really loved you know everything maxwell ever did or something and they 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 were like super Mm -hmm. into all this stuff Mm -hmm. you know then totally you know even then it's still like if they ask me like, oh, can you tell me more about that? I'm like, no, sorry, I can't <laughs> because I don't, now, I don't understand it well enough. Is that, is that a problem for the community though? Because that feels like a, a, you know, Trinity thing. Like, oh, you can't understand the Trinity just yet. Maybe once you get more knowledgeable in the ways of the spirit or more knowledgeable in the ways of physics and calculus. Like eh. on the one hand, I understand like writing to the people who need to hear from you. And he he's writing to his fellow super mathy calc nerds. But on the other hand, if we're trying to make this a wider thing, I mean, some stuff is just going to be more complicated. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, the world's greatest physicists getting together and talking about stuff uh, are going to be able to have conversations that you know even other physicists can't follow. Um, it, you know, it's. I guess what I, was, it, I don't think it's a problem for like the the movement though or anything. Like you know, because for whatever it's worth, I've been quote unquote somewhat level of involved in this stuff for like fifteen years. And I still don't yeah. quite get this, right? Yeah. Um, I, so I don't think this is necessary, uh, like requisite knowledge to be to be in the know. Maybe we need sort of like a a Saint Paul to come around and <laughs> a, a Scott Alexander, perhaps, to to make this stuff more explicable to the people who don't have advanced calculus knowledge. Or, you know, realistically, too, one of our listeners better understands this stuff and can give us a, a better analogy that explains what he's trying to get across here. Um, you know, because Dukowski is a really good writer, but he's not perfect. And I think, yeah. I think this is an example of, of, you know, cause we're not, you know, you and I aren't super geniuses, but neither are we stupid. And we don't understand what this is exactly trying to say. Uh, like at the, I, I again, cause I'm reading last sentences. I understand where it's getting, but I don't, I don't quite understand all this work to get there other than maybe just kind of like an indulgent way of, of making the, the point here at the end. Um, yeah. And then if someone says, well, sure, but it's like, well, no, actually, because I've just proven with all this other stuff. That's the part that gets me the, well, I've just proven with all this other stuff. And then the other person is left saying like, well, I can't understand all that other stuff. So I don't know. Am I stuck taking it on faith? Yeah, that's a, a valid concern and an, an interesting worry. I mean, I I would make this point differently um, without talking about thermodynamics and Maxwell's demon. I mean, yeah. I, I think I think that the the point of this can actually be distilled down to a handful of the quotes, right? Um, yeah. The you know the bold one about to form accurate beliefs about something you really do have to observe it. That that mm-hmm. knowledge can't come from nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and that information is stored in brains. Yeah, that knowledge is stored in brains. I mean, it's interesting because like some you, you have knowledge that you don't know you have stored in your brain, mm-hmm. and I don't quite know how that works uh, in this model. I mean, like. For example, you know, even though you haven't known until right until I told you that you can't buy plutonium at Starbucks, right? you know? Yeah. But, you know, I guess the work of that comes from knowing about plutonium and about what Starbucks is. 
Mm-hmm. So it's kind of just like a, an inference there. And maybe that inference takes a bit of work. I, I guess I just don't see this usefully abstracted all the way down to the level of molecules. I see this uh, being useful at the level of facts and truth and knowledge. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Maybe someone can tell us why the invoking of molecules was important. I look forward to it. Yeah. So what is the the final thing at the end here that you tried to get to a few times, which I find ironically appropriate? No, you're good. He, he says in quotes, cold rationality, unquote, is true in a sense that Hollywood scriptwriters never dreamed and fall and falls in the sense that they did dream. Um, so unless you can tell me which specific step of your argument violates the laws of physics by giving you true knowledge of the unseen, don't expect me to believe that a big, elaborate, clever argument can do it either. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe I, this is actually a, like a, a satire slash self-aware nudge, nudge, wink, wink thing. Oh, maybe it's a test. He's making this this simple point at the end. Yeah. Uh, but then he gives this whole long, complicated, st- complicated argument about the laws of physics and thermodynamics and stuff. Yeah. Uh, in a big, clever, elaborate argument. Uh, yeah. So maybe we're not supposed to believe that we're, you know, if we can't. Uh, whatever notice the the specific bits that that are true but um i think he's talking about something different and i and i'm reading into that no. incorrectly no 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 man i love this reading that you know a hundred years from now when or a thousand years from now when the monks are analyzing the scrolls they will say like and here he proved by by you know clever clever joke that um you shouldn't believe big elaborate clever arguments by giving a big elaborate clever argument which didn't didn't seem to say much of anything and may have violated laws of physics in it. But you don't know which part violated the laws of physics, so you're stuck accepting it or not. Yeah, I, I can dig it. Maybe maybe that's what he's doing, but I'm not sure. Right. He probably I, has I many, many purposes here. Yeah. yeah. And of course, he would never cop to it if he was. Yeah. Because that would ruin it. So I think what he's getting at there, too, with the quote unquote cold rationality is like cold fusion. You know, it's like knowledge from nowhere. Mm, and he's okay. like, you yeah. know, that that's not actually possible. Um, mm hmm. And it's not it's not possible for like actual physical reasons, but also just like intuitive and easier to explain, you know, uh, higher level physical reasons, you know? Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad we struggled through this and got to the end. And, me too. And made this. Yeah. I don't think we would have done any better if I had stopped to read it. So I yeah. Good point. This was probably the best course. Teaching. All right. Well, this ties neatly, I'm assuming, into the next one called Perpetual Motion Beliefs. I hope it does. And so he opens talking about, uh, well, a quote from the last one, that to form accurate beliefs, you really do have to observe it. He talks a lot about uh, probability of beliefs and brings up a lottery ticket saying, you know, someone has a lottery ticket says you can't prove I won't win, Mm -hmm. uh, which means you may have calculated a low probability of winning. But since it is a probability, it's just a suggestion. And I am allowed to believe what I want. And Eliezer says, yeah, sure, 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 sure. Smash an egg on the floor. The rule that says that the egg won't spontaneously reform and leap back into your hand is merely probabilistic. It's like that uh, glass of water that, you know, could spontaneously form ice cubes and electricity. A suggestion, if you will. So why not just ignore that suggestion? Then the egg will unscramble itself, right? I, I like that analogy a lot because, you know, the, the egg reassembling and flying into the person's hand isn't strictly impossible with the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. It's just so unlikely that it'll, it'll literally never happen unless you're, you know, got a tegmark sized view of the universe, right? Right. Um, in which case, it's happening somewhere at some point, but probably just yeah. once. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it's like, you know, there's there's a 
I, I think this is succinctly, maybe not put in this post, but probably in uh, methods of rationality and elsewhere, that one must be important. One must be mindful to distinguish possibility from probability. Mm. Right? There is a possibility that when you buy a lottery ticket, you'll win. Right? Ah, yes. There, in yeah. fact, there, there's a very there's a very calculable possibility. It's mm-hmm. it's a it approaches zero, um, but it's non-zero. Now, will you probably win? Now, hell no. Yeah, I like the way that he put it. It's um, probability constrains what you expect. Uh, He says you cannot expect the egg to reform. You must expect it to smash. Your mandatory belief is that the egg's probability of spontaneous reformations is approximately zero. So even though there is, you know, a possibility, it's not literally zero that the egg will reform. It is mandatory to expect that it won't reform due to that's how probabilities work and how expectations work. Yeah. There's a line in here that I like too, that uh, probabilities are not logical truths, but the laws of probability are. Yeah. What if I guess the state of the boiling water and I happen to guess correctly? Well, then, you know, congratulations. It's like winning the lottery. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, 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 your I, chance I, of guessing correctly by luck. That, uh, that was my answer was the lottery. His answer is better. Your chance of guessing correctly by luck is even less than the chance of the water boiling, cooling down by cooling down in your hand by luck. Yes. But you can't prove I won't guess correctly. I can, and indeed must, assign extremely low probability to it. That's not the same thing as certainty, though. Hey, maybe if you had enough wheels and gears to your argument, it'll turn warm water into electricity and ice cubes. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> no. I love it. No. Uh, he does point out that like, when half-trained or tenth-trained rationalists, or I'm going to insert here, people who call themselves post-rationalists but have never touched rationality, when they abandon their art and try to believe without evidence just this once, they often build vast edifices of justification, confusing themselves just enough to conceal the magical steps. There's always some step where a tiny probability turns into a large one, where they try to believe without evidence, where they step into the unknown, thinking, no one can prove me wrong. Their foot naturally lands on thin air, for there is far more thin air than ground in the realms of possibility. Which is, again, why you must expect thin air. It's just so, so much more of it than ground. I love it. I think um, some part of that must have been in methods of rationality or just somehow managed to stick in my brain. Right. The the, the part where a, a step where the tiny probability turns into a large one. That seems to be a failure mode of really anytime anyone who's smart, who's otherwise smart goes wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've talked with a couple of people who won't exactly say outright that they believe in magic, some, but act like they do. And then sometimes say they sometimes say they do. Yeah. Uh, at some point there, the there's like what I would consider a tiny possibility of like, well, there's this other stuff that's not physics that's affecting the outcomes of things or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's tiny. But to them, it ceases to be tiny. It gets big. Yeah. Right. Big enough for them to spend money and change their life around. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think, uh, yeah, you can't have your, your, you gotta be mindful of what your probabilities actually are. Yeah. Cool. I can dig it. All right. Well, what are we reading next time then? Uh, I think next time we are doing, yeah, there it is. Searching for Bayes structure and conditional independence and naive Bayes. Excellent. And you got a leg up cause you've already read those. Yeah. But I'll read them by, you know, next recording. So it'll go faster okay. the next time. Um, yeah, but before There's- we wrap up. We got a couple yes, things. We do. Got to give a shout out to the Guild of the Rose mentioned earlier. Um, they are the uh, they're an affiliate of ours who uh, support the show, and we support them in exchange. Uh, they are the rationalist dojo of the real world. Um, yes. If you 
like any of this stuff and want to get better at it, but don't quite know how this is where that, you know, mm-hmm. you can only get so far practicing martial arts forms by yourself in your basement. Right. Yeah. At you some, can get somewhere. You can get somewhere, but yeah. you, you can't, you can't get as far as you can working in a group with, uh, you know, a professional teaching you and a group of people learning with you. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the guild of the rose. Do check them out. And, uh, it's, if that doesn't already sound fun, they, they, they make everything really fun. They, they've got, it's like a video game for life. Again, the path system is like a skill tree in video games. It's, it's excellent. Yes. I I don't know what else to add to that. You, you covered it very well this week. Yay. (laughs) Well, uh, I got to give another special shout out, uh, this week or this episode to, uh, William Barrow. He is our supporting patron who brought this episode to you. We hope that the mad ramblings of, uh, you know, two um, out of practice podcasters wasn't uh, <laughs> uh, was an episode that you didn't mind your name being attached to. But thanks, thanks a lot, William. We appreciate it, William. Thank you. I, I, I it's nice to have a self indulgent episode every now and then. It, it felt good doing this, and um, and thank you for supporting us in all our episodes. Obviously, you are not supporting just this one, and we really do appreciate it. It makes life feel more meaningful. It does. And if that's within your your bounds and ability, we would love it. But if not, totally fine. You can also uh, um, whatever talk about the show, share it with people, rate it on iTunes. Uh, mm. You know what else do people do with stuff? Just have fun. Join the Discord. Talk with us. Talk with the the, the community at large. We've got hundreds of people on there, and uh, they're all really cool. So yeah, except for that one guy. We all hate that one guy, Stephen. Yeah, <laughs> Stephen Carlsberg. Is that somebody? That's an old reference to Welcome to Night Vale. He, for the first several seasons, really hated Steve Carlsberg. Oh, that rings a bell. I never, I didn't get past the first several seasons, but I got, I got several seasons in. Then I sort of just like got, I got the gist. And I was like, okay, this is just more of this. Yeah. Like I think I stopped stuff. after, I think I stopped after season three or four. Yeah, I agree. As with most stuff, eventually you just run out. Well, I know when Joseph Fink left is basically when I stopped listening. It started going a little downhill before that, but. Um, Wait, didn't we go to um, a live show together in Denver? We did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That would have been great. That would have been 10 years ago, right? Just about. Dude, I don't even Eight. know. Yeah, a while. Ages. I-, I know that Cecil did eventually um, reconcile with Steve Carlsberg. And that's also around the time it started to go downhill, in my opinion. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Steve Carlsberg ruined Welcome to Night Vale. Alas. Well. Well, uh, I can't think of a more fun note to end this one on. So, um, <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, let's call it. And uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks. Awesome. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye.